Books, booze, and B-movies with your favorite tipsy cuties. Hello, everybody, and welcome. I'm Sam. That's Katie, and you're listening to Real Lit. It's about to get real lit up in this bitch because this is the show where a cinephile in her free time covers a trashy movie and a English professor talks about some classic lit while both of us are getting drunk as fuck. You're welcome. Progressively more drunk as the episode goes on, so... (laughs) It's fun. Yeah. Which is why I cleverly positioned myself to be the first. <laughs> well, it's a lot easier to review movies while drunk than it is to talk about really classic literature. Yes, There's a lot yes, more that goes into literature and the things you <laughs> need to cover than there is in my movie. Although, to be fair, the drunker I get, the funnier the comparisons and the ways I try to describe things get if only yeah. because I lose patience with attempting to find my words. It's like <laughs> drunk history, except it's the two, it's the same two people every time. Yeah. We're not famous. <laughs> not no. yet, anyways. And no one cares. Yeah. <laughs> but thank you, because you clearly care. Thanks for listening. Yeah. Thanks. Hello. I am drinking a monster and a beer. So I'm mixing my uppers and downers. Oh, you're going to get fucked like up. Like a mad woman. Hearing it fucked up. <laughs> and today we are covering everyone's favorite fun dystopian novel by George Orwell called 1984. Now I happen to teach 1984 currently for one of my classes that I teach at several colleges. Uh, so I happen to really, really intimately know 1984. Uh, and there's also some very interesting stuff that I actually have at my disposal, like news about it and, you know, information about Orwell and things that I have because I have those things because I get to give them to my students and stuff. So it'll be a fun enriched experience today because we'll get to have teacherly Sam in the room. I'm really excited because (laughs) because (laughs) I never got to cover 1984 in my education. Really? Um, Yeah. So my junior year in advanced English or whatever, um, it's like one of the novels that you're that you can cover. But my English teacher, the way that he set up our situation was we all read Fahrenheit 451 together. Oh. And then... um, (laughs) Sorry, I didn't mean to sound so underwhelmed by that. Sorry, I was kind of like, I was all, oh, No, it's fine. (laughs) And then like at the semester break for between fall and spring, he put us all in groups and then had us basically pull names from a hat. And we each got assigned a classic novel that's like one of the novels that you would can go over in 11th grade. So like one group got 1984 and we ended, my group ended up covering uh, The Jungle, Sinclair's The Jungle. So, Ah, okay. uh, and then at the end, we all had to do like these out of the box, like uh, presentations on it. And I remember the group that did 1984, um, they like got up and kind of explained the book like a broad like here's a five minute presentation on 
1984. Here's Which I'm sure would make zero sense to anyone who's never read the book. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but, but basically, they got five minutes to kind of explain the book. And then they got to, um, they got another like five or 10 minutes or something to explain their project that they had to do that was like based on the book. And I remember this project only because it was so fucking cool. Not that I remember the, like, I don't really know anything about the book, but they no. made a board game for 1984 like they built a board oh, game shit. and then it like you had to go around and go through the events that the characters in the book go through and i was like that's so fucking cool what yeah oh, my project was that's... not as was not nearly as cool well it was cool but not that cool that's so interesting like knowing how the book is hearing that they made a game where you have to go through the all the things that the characters experience that's that's very interesting <laughs> yeah i feel uh, like you'll remember it a little differently after i'm done describing oh, I'm sure. it <laughs> uh my my group made a uh um because we did the jungle, which is if you've never read the jungle or don't know anything about the jungle, it is about the industrial revolution and the kind of the events that brought around the uh, Food and Drug Administration and the restrictions on child labor and labor laws that have to do with food. So it's a lot of like people getting their arms caught in meat grinders and ending yes. up in food because that's just the reality of you know turn of the century oh, yeah. <laughs> you know yeah 1900 when you <laughs> found revolution. a fucking bay leaf in your chipotle consider if you found a fucking finger yeah uh so for mine because it was all about like animals uh like to produce the production of meat basically we built a paper mache pig and yes. and we filled it with like guts <laughs> Ooh. like what would be guts so it was like red yarn for like small and like oh, a braid cute. of red yarn for like intestines and shit and then we destroyed it like a pinata in my class and the wow. guts just went everywhere it was okay. fantastic it was great <laughs> <laughs> mr rhodes atwater high mr rhodes 11th grade english he was fucking great <laughs> i was gonna say like how how do i reach my uh teenage kids in my literature class let them create projects for shit and then smash them to pieces yeah perfect got yeah. it <laughs> oh our original plan i'm mad because our original plan was really good we were gonna rewrite the words to welcome to the jungle by guns and roses to yes. fit the book and then perform it in class but oh my god yeah but our guitarist so like <laughs> We had a couple people who were like musically inclined, but the, our last one of our group members was like the opposite of musically inclined. And we couldn't like, oh. he like, <laughs> he was, he was too scared to like yeah, he, do it. He was not about I was it, like, that's, that's fine. fine. That's fine. I right. get it. That's fine. So like a week before it was due, we had to change our project. We're like, oh shit, what are we going to do? <laughs> oh my God. That's so hilarious. we made a paper mache pig and then pinata it all over the class it was fantastic it's wonderful and then everybody was covered in pig guts and it was a joyous occasion yeah but it was just like yarn and confetti so it was okay <laughs> oh yeah oh no i would have worn that shit around the entire rest of the day if i oh, had yeah. been in that class pig like, guts I, have, I would have legitimately walked around with that shit just all over <laughs> me anyway sorry guys sorry uh, that was a big no jump. it was great it was wonderful i was mesmerized hence so 1984 
is of course written by George Orwell. And uh, it's great that you've never read it because this will be twice as fun than ruining your life with it. Sorry about it. But <laughs> oh, I know it's I know it's a shit show because all the books that you're re- you're forced to read in 11th grade is just a shit show. 11th Literally. grade is like junior year is the year where all the teachers try to scare you about the realities of the real world and it mm. kind of works. But then you yeah. hit senior year and the senioritis kicks in and you don't give a fuck how stupid the real world is. It's like, well, the fine. problem <laughs> is, is that like junior year is when they like really try to do it. But even if like just in general, all literature that is chosen for high schoolers, especially later and later uh, in the 21st century we get is just it's not for high school students. And instead of trying to figure out like how to reach them with the classics in a way that is going to make them understand them and actually want to enjoy literature more they just kind of like double down on the like no bang it into your head because it's cultured kind of method and it just doesn't work yeah and so you know, I read for the first time I ever read 1984, I was in high school, I was a sophomore, I was in an advanced English class, and we had to read 1984. And I finished it. And I was like, this is the worst book I've literally ever read. <laughs> like, I was legitimately <laughs> upset that I had wasted my life reading it. Because nothing in 1984 is relevant to a fucking 15 year old. Oh, girl, <laughs> like, let me tell you. Nothing. Let, you think, <laughs> nothing you think 1984 it. is irrelevant, girl. No, all of it, for girl. sure. No, I'm 100% with you. Exactly. I read fucking Henry David Thoreau's Walden at the Ugh. Pond in high school. Why? <laughs> You want to talk about some shit that no high schooler gives any fucks about. It is legitimately a story of an maybe old man. Maybe 70% of adults even don't give a fuck about it. Yeah. It's literally a story of an old man who goes and lives next to a lake and then talks about his experiences about living <laughs> next to a lake. There's nothing. There's no other people in it. There's no. He goes and hangs out by himself and writes in a diary about nature. That's literally the entirety of Walden. Just the whole book. And then we had to like dissect it like you do in English. Like, oh, this is a simile for this. And this is a whatever. And I'm like, no. Fucking why? This book is boring. This shit is so stupid. The road literally just looked at the tree and was like, I'm going to spend 40 pages talking about this tree. There you go. It was worse than like trying to get through The Hobbit or not The Hobbit, but the beginning of Lord of the Rings where he's like, where he's like, blah, 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 son of blah, 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 son of blah, blah, blah. Like nobody cares about these hobbits genealogy. Like get the fuck over it, J.R.R. Tolkien. Like nobody cares. (laughs) Publish that genealogy shit in a different book like you did for the Silmarillion and like just get over it. Right, skip these this fucking book of numbers bullshit (laughs) sorry get rid of it yeah sorry high school high school literature can be bullshit if you are a high school english teacher take these criticisms in mind and hopefully you have already or you will change what you're doing to engage your students because let me tell you walden at the pond it ain't cutting it 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 ain't doing it no one cares Yeah, I uh, I distinctly remember being very angry that I had wasted a good chunk of my time being 15 
reading that. Uh, and then the next book we had to read after that was Brave New World, and I didn't even finish it because I had just finished 1984, and I was already pissed. And Brave New World is basically 1984, except, like, throw in some gore and, like, ABO content. And, <laughs> and so, like, I just got to, like, page 63 or something, and I was like, yeah, I'm not reading this anymore. And I, like, got a C on the test for it because I just asked my friends what Brave New World what happened in it <laughs> yeah cliff notes were a lifesaver circa <laughs> early 2000s high school and this is this is me the person that like was the reader like I was the English nerd kid growing up yeah I was, I've always been like this and so for me to like have those experiences was really kind of telling for me later when I had to like reread a bunch of this stuff getting my bachelor's degree because I was like god why why did they make children read these none of these books are for kids kids are not going to read these books and understand what the significance of it is because you're not teaching them anything about the world around them that directly pertains to the significance of some of these books. Yeah. Like some of the stuff that we're going to cover in 1984 today right now is stuff that we didn't even go over in my senior year government class. Yeah. You know, it's bullshit, but we'll, we'll pause that. We'll pause that and we'll just dive right in. Pause the tirade. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to give a whole bunch of intro before going into the summary. I'm actually going to save a lot of the discussion for after it because I kind of want it to be a little bit of a shocking experience. So all I will say is that George Orwell wrote this. It is a dystopian novel. It is, um, we would call this social science fiction. George Orwell is an English novelist and it was published in June of 1949. And it was Orwell's ninth and final completed book of his lifetime. That's a lot of books to write in your lifetime. Yeah. Uh, he was born Eric Arthur Blair. George Orwell was actually a pen name. Uh, and he was born in 1903. He was born in colonial India, just FYI. Uh, and then he went to boarding school in England. And it was there that uh, he started having some experiences that really later on down the road sort of lead to forming his personality and his interests in life and his uh, concerns about society. So with that said, let's begin. So I'm going to read the first sentence. Uh, the first sentence is a pretty, uh, one of those iconic ones, and it also kind of sets the mood pretty well. And I actually am probably going to read from this, just little snippets here and there, a lot more than I have in the past, because there are legitimately some things that impact better just reading them rather than me trying to like explain them. Um, it would be, sh- it's shorter if I read them and you just hear them, basically, <laughs> rather than if I tried to describe them. <laughs> That's fair. So the first uh, line of 1984 was, it was a bright, cool day in April, and the clocks were striking 13. So right away, you can tell something is slightly not in the realm of normal. This book has a main character, and his name is Winston Smith. He thinks he's about 39 years old. He thinks 39 rather than knows because he's not exactly sure how old he is because he is not exactly sure what his birthday is. He's sitting in his apartment when we start this story. 
Uh, the scene around him is his apartment is a crappy piece of shit. It is bare bones, bare bricks. He is looking out a window uh, into the town slash area that he lives in. And he, it is, you know, gray and kind of dismal outside. It's in April. So, you know, it's kind of rainy outside all around are tons and tons of posters that are very obviously propaganda posters. They are posters of military figures marching around. They are posters of a man who, it, you know, is enlarged, right? So it's, it's larger than life posters of a man with, you know, really penetrating eyes and a big thick mustache that say, big brother is watching you. And outside there's drones from helicopters that are currently flying around everywhere. Winston himself is in pretty poor health. He has a chronic cough. It's probably COPD because he is a chronic smoker, uh, despite the fact that uh, cigarettes are really hard to come by. He is also a drunk. He has to drink crappy gin because it's actually um, some of the only stuff that he gets access to to be able to drink. So he's drunk quite often. Uh, he's not in good health. He is not in good respiratory health. He has a ulcer on his ankle that bothers him a lot and is angry and uh, is not comfortable for him. He is just all around a guy that is sitting in a, a crappy place, both <laughs> physically and mentally, obviously. And he's whipping out his diary. He is about to write in his diary when we open this story. The reason that this is an event that begins a story that is worthy of being told is because Winston's, you know, the narrator tells us that Winston is about to write in this diary, and this is a crime. Uh, not in a technical sense, because technically in his society, there is no crime. Uh, there's nothing that is against the law, but in a sense, anything and up to everything is potentially against the law, because whatever you do that could potentially lead to you going against the government in thought or word or deed is seditious and punishable from anywhere between imprisonment in forced labor camps to forced military servitude or service to public execution to, you know, not public execution, but essentially uh, kidnapping and being disappeared, basically. So he is writing in this diary in his apartment. The reason he's doing this, even though it's a crime, is he has secluded himself into this little alcove that he has in his room. The way it is set up is that there is a telescreen, or what we would consider like a TV screen, in his room. That telescreen is always on. He doesn't have the ability to turn it off. He doesn't have the ability to change anything about what it is broadcasting to him constantly. And he is constantly being monitored through that telescreen. But the way his apartment is set up is there's a little alcove where if he smushes himself into it, he is able to hidden a little writing desk and the telescreen can't see what he's doing over there. So he has taken this diary out and is now beginning to write in it, which fundamentally makes our protagonist in this story a criminal, right, in his society. So the society that he lives in, the narrator tells us now, is he lives in London on Airstrip 1 in Oceania, 
They are under Big Brother and Big Brother's party, which is the reigning government. The government is broken up into four ministries, the Ministry of Truth, the Ministry of Plenty, the Ministry of Peace, and the Ministry of Love. So in his diary, Winston first writes about going to the movies once. He went and saw a really gross like war propaganda film and it's really gross. Uh, he describes it kind of in as much detail as he can remember while he's frantically writing um, that it's, it's very, very racist against the like enemies that are getting annihilated in this war propaganda film, like children are getting murdered and body pots are flying everywhere in it and uh, everyone's getting a laugh out of it. He writes that experience down. He sits back, he remembers in this moment after he's written this down, the incident that inspired him that day to come home and finally begin writing in his diary. The incident that solidified his resolve to come home that day and finally write was a thing called the two minute hate. So at their work every day, Winston and his colleagues have to engage in what is called a two minute hate. So this two minute hate is essentially where everyone stops what they're doing. They gather to watch a big screen together and it's a little two minute video that is a propaganda video all about the enemies of the party and the enemies of Big Brother. And you are supposed to essentially become frenzied and sort of it riles you up and sort of brings up this passionate hatred and reminds you over and over again who are the people that you hate, who are the enemies of the government and of you, right? And who is your savior, i.e. Big Brother. In particular, the two-minute hate focuses on the largest enemy of the government, which is Emmanuel Goldstein and his purported following of rebels called the Brotherhood. So Goldstein is a Jewish man, and the entire propaganda video, you know, is all about painting him in a very gross light, making him hateful, stirring up the desire to want to annihilate him and murder him and anyone who listens to him and anything that is, uh, you know, threatening Big Brother or threatening their society, essentially. So this is something that happens to Winston every day, by the way. This is the two-minute hate. So the two-minute hate that happened to him that day, obviously, was just like all the other times. But this time that day, he happened to see two people at the two minute hate that particularly kind of sparked his feelings and his attention and kind of roused him into the feeling of finally going home and actually beginning this act of sedition basically against his government. Uh, so the first person that he sees at the two minute hate is this dark haired girl. Literally that is how he refers to her because he does not even know her name. It's always a girl. <laughs> There's a dark haired girl. He knows her because he sees her around work a lot. He is pretty sure that he hates her guts. He hates her, though, because he likes her. So he is clearly attracted to her. Uh, and we'll get into why this is problematic later on. But, like, that's a problem for their society. And she, according to him, by what he sees when he, you know, sees her, 
is like just the quintessential perfect party girl. And this just infuriates him because he hates the party, but he also would definitely bang this girl, basically. Um, So he hates her. And he's also pretty sure that she's potentially a spy. He's pretty sure that she's a spy in what is called the thought police. (laughs) So the thought police is essentially literally what it sounds like. It is a secretive um, police force of the society that is not technically in existence, but simultaneously everyone knows is in existence. And they enforce thought crime. They enforce and punish thought crime. If you are believed to be someone who is secretly not liking the government for whatever reason, however it looks, you could at any given moment potentially be taken by a member of the thought police. They don't wear uniforms. They don't, you know, identify themselves. You never know who they are. Yeah. They're plain, uh, they're plain clothes security, but basically SS officers. Yes. Yeah, essentially. Uh, And so he is pretty sure that she's the thought police. Because the more he's become uh, less happy about Big Brother and sort of hating his life and hating the party, the more he's kind of seen her around him at work. The other person he sees at the Two Minute Hate is this man named O'Brien. O'Brien is a higher ranking uh, person in his job and in the government than Winston is. Winston is a part of what is called the Outer Party. Uh, So he works for the government uh, and he does, you know, important work for them, but he is not the highest of the classes of citizens in the society. O'Brien, however, is an inner party member. They do uh, much more important things for the government. What that is, no one knows. It's not your place to know. You don't need to know, so you don't question it. But O'Brien is someone that he has also seen around uh, work a whole lot, and he knows him by name. The reason that O'Brien is someone that Winston recognizes and picks out out of a crowd of of all the other potential inner party members is because as he's watched O'Brien during work, whenever he would see him, there's something about O'Brien that incites in Winston this feeling that he could potentially feel the same way Winston does. There is something about O'Brien and his demeanor, uh, and Winston knows that it's that he has really no logical reason to think this, but it's just a feeling he gets that O'Brien is potentially someone who thinks the same way Winston does about the party, that potentially he secretly hates it all too, uh, that he maybe is potentially on his side. And that day, when he is at the two-minute hate, O'Brien, during it and at the end of it, gives Winston what he considers a very specific look. And Winston really takes this to heart and thinks those were deliberate looks. I feel it very much more sure now than I have been that there's something up with O'Brien. I think he feels like me. I think he and I are kindred spirits, basically. And this is what kind of bolstered his... Uh, rebellious nature enough to go home and start writing in his diary. So this was all a flashback. You're welcome. He rouses now and realizes that as he was sitting here thinking about all this, he has written over and over in his diary down with Big Brother while he was just sitting there kind of idly thinking. And so now he's very, very worried because there's no going back from this now. When he was just writing about his like fun memory, there was some plausible deniability. Saying down with Big Brother is no plausible deniability and he is now officially committed thought crime eat it Uh, 
Yeah. So, Rip it well, out and eat it. So, you know, thought crime essentially leads directly to death, basically. In particular, what they refer to in society as vaporizing people. This is Yikes, that sounds horrible. Worse. Well, this is worse than death because you don't just die, you are treated as if you've never existed. And everything about you and your existence is systemically erased. So mm-hmm. one day someone exists and the next they don't and they never have. And that is there what they are, call vaporizing people. There are a <laughs> lot of movies that do things like this. Yeah. Where like the person who is seemingly a good guy just like makes one mistake and then the government wipes them from everything and they have to, there's a lot of action movies. They have to like claw their way back from nothingness basically to yeah. come back and be you know, whoever to take down the person that took the, you know, that erased them or whatever that wronged them. But this is starting out as the plot of every action movie you've ever watched. Well, consider, consider all of the action movies that you've ever watched started their plots based off of 1984. Oh, for sure. sure. (laughs) I I can, like, you've only gotten, we're, we're like half a chapter in, like this kid's barely written, like, I don't like Big Brother in his notebook. And like, (laughs) I can already tell you like 30 movies. I can list off the top of my head, like 30 movies that start out this situation. Dystopian world. Society. Dystopian society is fucked up. And the craziest part about about all of this is to think about the fact that this dystopian like future that all of these authors and movies depict actually is happening around the world like in places around the world there are countries Mm -hmm. where shit like this is actually happening and no one has stepped in to like fix it or try and stop it it's just yeah this is just the norm for some of those places and I would be I'm not gonna lie 50% not surprised if I got like investigated by the FBI after we air this (laughs) Oh, no. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and give a shout out right now to my personal FBI agent that is listening to my Google, uh, all my Google searches and my Facebook history and all of that. Like, I know there's one of you out there that like you're just in charge of me. Like, that's your job is to search me and to figure out if I'm, if I'm, you know, looking at the wrong porn or talking about the wrong thing or whatever <laughs> or guessing whatever insane thing the government has planned up next like i have no doubt i know i have i'm sure there's an fbi agent hold on somewhere. hold on it's fine i'll flag us right now are you ready fuck trump and fuck america there you go <laughs> all right we've officially been put oh, no, on, a, on a on a terrorist watch list oh You're no welcome. we've been flagged uh <laughs> allentown, allentown presents has been flagged we we've been flagged for a long time so like I'm not I'm not even surprised. I just want to give a shout out to my FBI agent. Like good for you, man. You keep you're, working. You yes. you're doing a good job. Thank you, you for listening. You got your paycheck. You get yeah, your shit done. Exactly. Uh thank you for listening and I'm sorry. Yes. For all the dumb shit that you have to listen to cuz my life 
is not fun or entertaining. Like I don't do anything yeah. fun, especially like, in COVID. Hopefully you find some way. Yeah. Hopefully especially- you find some way to entertain yourself while you are watching me do it literally nothing. All yeah. Day. Especially <laughs> in COVID. Like I hope that all my random like movie quote searches and lyric searches and like how many times I've listened to Hamilton. Like I hope that's entertaining you because yes. that's, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'n not more fun, dude. Yeah. But thank you for my listening. FBI, uh, FBI agent. agent is like, She's she just she just does the same thing for twenty hours of the day. She's just scrolling Twitter over and over again. Right? Mine's like, <laughs> oh, she's on Facebook. She's watching Netflix again. Another movie. What she the fuck? That. What the fuck? Does she ever go to work? I'm like, this is my work. Like, this is oh, part shit. of my work. Like, shit. She's watching the same Destiel fan vids that she watched five hours ago. <laughs> right? Another episode of Grey's Anatomy. When will it end? <laughs> sorry i'm sorry sorry. fbi agent my bad but (laughs) thank you for listening to this podcast because i know you're out there listening um please please rate and uh leave a comment yeah i hope you have a wonderful holiday season with your family and (laughs) i'm sorry that you have to listen to this bullshit sorry (laughs) i had to give a shout out to my fbi agent we good we good they deserve a shout out for sure yeah um anyway (laughs) back to winston smith uh, our poor, poor protagonist sitting in his apartment, terrified that at any moment someone is just going to like put a gun to his the back of his head without any warning whatsoever. Oh, so he's black? <laughs> uh, yeah, basically 1984 is like if the entire population was black. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, sounds and f- and then ev- like- and then everybody in the inner party is white. That's yeah. entirely accurate. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Okay. Uh, I got it. Sorry. I got it. I'm in the, I'm in the vibe now and I don't like it. <laughs> I, got I don't vibe. like where yeah, I'm at because great. it's like 2020 America. It's, it's not great. Yeah. Fuck um, you and your racist shit. Everybody like get the fuck over yourselves. <laughs> so while he's sitting here after literally having just committed thought crime, there's a banging at the door. And so he's triply petrified now but it just so happens that it's just his fucking neighbor named mrs parsons uh she's asking him to help her fix her sink basically it's some normal shit regular life <laughs> and so gotta sprinkle that in amongst yeah. the amongst the crazy like you gotta have a little bit of as true in all media not just novels but in fucking movies and stuff there's always got to be like that that turn yeah for like a second you're like Tension, 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 tension. Up. Oh, it's just my neighbor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like always. Yeah. So he's like, uh, yeah, definitely, Mrs. Parsons. I, I super can help you fix your sink because I definitely wasn't sitting here like committing thought crime. <laughs> that's that's a crazy idea. Why would anyone think that? Why would I ever um, do that? So he goes to help Mrs. Parsons. Mrs. Parsons is, of course, the wife of a Mr. Parsons. Parsons is one of Winston's co-workers. He doesn't particularly like Parsons. So he goes to help her. Uh, Her kids are there. Her kids are fucking freaks because um, unfortunately growing up in a totalitarian dystopian society, when the coming generation is brought up within that type of society, kids learn what they are surrounded with. So children, the children in this society are the scariest citizens of them all because they are growing up fundamentally believing all of this is okay. Yeah, all think think normal, back to like fine. anyone 
14 and under growing up in Nazi Germany. I, I was like, literally, I, circa, I liken this whenever I teach this is these are Hitler youth. For sure. Like this is Nazi Germany circa 1944 and 45. Like anyone under the age of 14, For they sure. don't know that it's wrong because no. it's the only thing they've ever because known. All and of the grownups are telling them that it's not that it's wrong, right. That it's yeah, actually, they've, right. exactly. they've been told their whole lives that it's right, and this is the only thing that they've ever been told. I mean, honestly, you don't even have to go that far back. You don't even have to go to World yeah. War II. Look at right now in America and fucking racist assholes teaching their kids to be racist assholes. Uh, what was that fuck's name? Uh, Kyle Rittenhouse or oh, whatever Rittenhouse. the fuck. The like, murderer. Yeah, he was like seventeen and just like shot up a bunch of folks because. Because they're black. Because they're black. Like, get the fuck out. Yeah, get the fuck out of here. Because that's what he had been taught. Because his parents, you know, perpetuated the idea that someone who looks different than you is wrong. And who knows how many generations before him also perpetuated that idea. And it's very much it's the Hitler Youth, basically. Traditions. Some of them are horrible, or they can be racist. Um, uh, racist traditions need to get the (laughs) fuck out of here this whole country is a racist tradition fuck it absolutely uh that is (laughs) back to your fuck america thing uh so you're welcome sorry everyone oh by the way if you're listening to this and you don't hate america or you don't realize why america sucks i don't know why you're listening um bye yeah i'm sorry <laughs> you probably shouldn't be here and yeah. this is probably I mean, a good time a i good mean it's chance your life. For you you're free to sit and get angry if you want i'm just saying you're not gonna find any content here you enjoy <laughs> yeah and i guarantee you neither one of us give a fuck if you write a scathing review of oh. us calling us you know bitches or whatever the fuck you got on twitter or on whatever Mm -hmm. the garbage like republican social media thing that they've come up with i don't care parlor Parlor? yeah i don't give a fuck like go ahead (laughs) break my name through the mud it's not gonna hurt me (laughs) i don't care oh damn it 1984 okay so i'm excited this is we're gonna get real real political on this episode (laughs) so if you have a problem, if you here for it, I'm here for it. If you have a problem, well, no, let's let's scratch that. If you are racist or a fan of Donald Trump and his cabinet and the things that have happened, you need to stop listening and just skip this episode. You're you're just not going to be happy. You're exactly. not going to be happy. We're going to talk a lot of shit about a lot of this is going to liken itself to Donald Trump and his administration. So if you are a Republican, maybe, maybe just, skip this, just episode. skip this one. Like you don't, you don't need to listen to listen to this. It's like, because we care about you. This we, we love, we like you. Um, we, it, sure. We like you yeah. as a person, as a friend, but if you are racist trash, get the fuck out of right, here. I have right. no time for you. Go die we in like a fire. You unless you're racist. Yeah. No. Go die in a fire. My husband is black and I don't give a shit about what you think about that. So (laughs) fuck you. A plus. (laughs) Katie passes my class. No. Sorry. I'm I'm gonna get real Uh, angry. The more the farther (laughs) we go into 1984, I'm gonna get progressively angry and angry. And it's gonna make it really hard to talk about my movie because my movie is not an angry movie in the slightest. No, it's good because then it'll be it'll be great because it'll be the balm that we all need after we've like rage smashed together our computers. 
Yeah, we're like what half a chapter in of this book, yeah. and I'm just fucking well, but mad this is already. Also, so just in the, just a very very quick side note, and then I swear we're gonna get back to the story. Um, <laughs> that like this is actually one of the biggest problems with 1984, um, particularly for reading for younger audiences, because um, the way Orwell writes in particular, he's a novelist, obviously, like he wrote novels, but like he's also a like a f- political philosopher essentially, and he just found a way somehow for his very last book to combine his political philosophy into fiction. Uh, so the first part, the 1984 is broken up into three parts. The first part is pretty much just all world building. And so there is a lot of data dump put on the reader and it's super overwhelming. And if you're a child, who doesn't really understand anything about government to begin with, especially if you're in America, none of this is relevant to you because you don't know it. Yeah, our shit's complex. And all of this is entirely just 180 from anything that you could ever possibly imagine, you know, as a child. As an adult, it's easier because you have learned things, unfortunately. As a kid, it's just not. It's hard. Part one, I tell my kids all the time, listen, you're going to struggle. I get some kids that enjoy part one, but the vast majority of them never do. And I have to tell them, I'm sorry about part one, but you have to get through it because it sets the world up. Then the rest of the story is actually an interesting story. But part one is literally just like data dump by Orwell. This is the society they live in. This is how the government is structured. This is how the economy is structured. Like that's, it's crazy. Yeah, it's the first couple of chapters of every dystopian novel you've ever read. So like Hunger Games and Maze Runner and all of these different what is now considered, I guess, classic, modern classics, uh, dystopian novels. Like it's all that setup. They have to immerse you in the world so that you are ready and you understand why the characters are taking the actions that they're taking. They want you to- to understand what's happening in the government and what's happening, you know, with the shady ass shit over here so that you are, so that you side with the protagonist when shit goes down later in the book because you know that that's the whole point. Like some, at some point, at some point Katniss is going to fucking flip her shit and she's going to turn on the Capitol and we're going to see that shit in real life. And if you haven't read Hunger Games, what are you, what, how? Yeah. That's yeah. a real question because it's written for children. <laughs> it's like a thousand pages total. Like, get off your ass and read it. You could finish it in like a weekend. Like, come on. <laughs> uh, anyway, so yes, all of that. Winston is helping Mrs. Parsons with her sink. <laughs> um, he goes to help her. Uh, her kids are there. Her kids are fucking freaks because they're Hitler youth, basically. Uh, they're like running around being little crazy ass shits. They're playing thought criminal and thought police, basically. And like the, you know, the brothers running around with like a toy BB gun or something uh, going, I'm going to kill you. You're a murderer. You're Goldstein. I'm going to hang you in the square. Which, by the way, happens. There's a bunch of public hangings and a bunch of public murders and punishments and things like that happen. Uh, When Winston is there, it's kind of just an indicator of his guilt because when the kids initially come out, like the the son kind of stares him in the eyes and goes, you're a thought criminal. And at first Winston is like, Jesus Christ, because 
Winston is a thought criminal, but like, it's just a kid being a kid, you know? So Mrs. Parsons like, oh, I'm so sorry. Just, you know, ignore them. And he's like, <laughs> yeah, oh, crazy kids. Um, anyway, I gotta go, <laughs> basically, is Winston. Uh, and he goes home and he writes more in his diary. And so this is kind of our first little excerpt that we are going to read uh, because this is kind of finally when Winston settles into and when he kind of realizes why he has started this diary. He writes, to the future or to the past, to a time when thought is free, when men are different from one another and do not live alone, to a time when truth exists and what is done cannot be undone. From the age of uniformity, from the age of solitude, from the age of Big Brother, from the age of doublethink. Greetings. Thought crime does not entail death. Thought crime is death. Ah. So that, yeah. So uh, he writes that and goes to bed. That night he dreams about his mother. He remembers essentially what happened when he was younger. So there was a war. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. But essentially they were poor. They had nowhere to live. They didn't have food. And he kind of stole the last of their food because he was a shitty little kid, like a child. And then his, you know, he had a sister and his sister was a baby. Uh, and he kind of like stole the food and ran off with it. And he never saw them again, basically. So he dreams about his mom. He also dreams about the dark haired girl, kind of a pretty typical wet dream, I guess, uh, for a dude who is sexually repressed in a dystopian society uh he is woken up by the telescreen he has to get up and do exercises uh it's emphasized again he is very obviously in poor health he also thinks here while he's doing exercises he's thinking about the war that they are currently in because they have been in war forever according uh -huh. to big brother they Sounds are like at america war. <laughs> They're at war with Eurasia and their allies are East Asia. We will get into this later, but this is how it has quote unquote always been. They're at war with Eurasia and their allies are East Asia, except Winston knows that always actually really means four years because he remembers that four years ago, before then, they were actually at war with East Asia and their allies were Eurasia, but then it changed. And so now they've always been at war with Eurasia and their allies have always been East Asia. What so the fuck? It's only in his mind. And the reason it is only in his mind is because, spoiler alert, we now get to go to work with Winston, not just for the two minute hates, but we get to see what Winston does. Winston is essentially the anti-journalist. The journalist in our society reports news, tells truths. In this society, that is not a thing. There is no freedom of the press. Uh, he works in the records department in the Ministry of Truth. His job is essentially to change all of the written materials and news publications that uh, are put out. His job is to literally change them in the way that the government tells him to. So he's literally over and over and over again. Uh, an American historian circa any time before 1990 yeah. in any reference to any other race besides white people in America. Kind of. Yeah. Because sure. you can literally <laughs> open if you go back and look at like a textbook, maybe not right now because we've come a little bit 
But if you go to a school, we've come a little bit farther than that. But if yeah. you go to a school who is using old textbooks, like from the 90s or from the 80s, you will see depictions of people who are literally Native American and Black, and they are portrayed in that book as white guys or Egyptian pharaohs who are clearly white dudes. Yeah. Like rewriting history so that the quote unquote that is li- white man his job that the white his man job is literally to rewrite it yeah he's rewriting history to forget all of the parts that are important all of the things that might make his political party look bad so yes. you know let's forget that slavery ever existed let's forget that you know we just decimated the native americans or indigenous peoples of the nation and took over all their land like yeah no they were bad guys wearing feathers mm-hmm. on their heads and now they, they hated have, us they were trying to kill us all they hated us and now I they have why. casinos like no that's like america has a here a serious problem with this thank you george orwell for pointing this out in your book and if you are american and you haven't read this book like me clearly you need to get on this shit because this is some insane america shit that he was writing so- about I will, uh, yeah. Um, so <laughs> I just, I can't say anything because I've saved it all for later after the book has finally ended. Oh, that's but fair. It's going to be a long political like, tirade, I'm sure. It, no, you're fine. But uh, like, I'll just say that there is, obviously I mentioned that I teach this book and there's a reason I teach this book. And there is also a reason that I now, it's not that I enjoy the book because I don't, it's not a fun experience, but it is an important book to have read and to know about and to understand uh, for a variety of reasons. But I will also remind you, this book was written in 1949. So just post-World War II, uh, like I mean, along the lines of World War II, I don't think any person who teaches World War II necessarily likes teaching about the Nazis or any literature teachers who have to teach, you know, the Diary of Anne Frank. Like, that's not a happy book. That's not a, that's not a good time in our worldly history. Like, that's not a thing that we necessarily want to talk about or remember but it's something that we have to talk about and remember so that it doesn't happen again because i mean if you are have been in america recently we're you know heading towards that it's a mood it's a vibe it's 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 a vibe vibe, and we're heading there definite vibe (laughs) we're on on the train we're on the we're on the vibe train to uh hitler town and so this train needs to be derailed Thank if you, you need to, if you need to get off at any stops, you better do so fucking soon. Yeah, um, it's it's rough sure. out here. So <laughs> we're this entire podcast has just turned into like anyone who's not in America, help, please. <laughs> oh, they all know it. If you're if you are listening oh, no, from another country, that's why. That's why y'all, y'all know please. y'all can see. Help. You all know we, need, we, we need, fucked up. We need serious help. Yeah. You think you think the shit that you see on TV is bad? Whew. You don't live here. It's worse. You don't it's see the propaganda. Time. The political okay. propaganda. Okay. It's heartbreaking. So that's, yeah, it truly is. No joke. The only reason that I have to run over it is because I could sit in and talk about it all day. And then this podcast would be five hours of me just crying which derailed yeah to. i'm sorry i keep derailing it because <laughs> no, i keep like bringing it back totally to politics <laughs> and i don't mean to and i'm sorry 
if you're not from America and you don't have to deal with these politics necessarily yeah. on a on a daily basis, but I guess if you're interested in how some normal people think of it, like I'm sure there's a bunch of other people. I know there are a bunch of other podcasts and other um, you know shows and you know influential people and uh, uh, celebrities and stuff that talk about it too. But if you want to hear it straight from the mouths of two pretty normal non-known uh, citizens in the U.S., yeah, it's not great. Just to confirm. It's not. Just to it's confirm. <laughs> yeah. So, um, anyway, that's what Winston does. He is essentially the anti-journalist. He uh, he works. He's an editor for Fox News. Yes. Uh, it, it, it's called The Times in here, but essentially, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> the Times. That's fine. Uh, so he uh, he goes to work uh, that day after he uh, has gone through his really harrowing exercise routine. He today he gets to make up an entire person uh, to replace a dude that has become an unperson. This person has been vaporized, so now everything about them um, has to be erased, and uh, certain things have to be changed in order to uh, accommodate that erasure so he gets to make up an entirely um not real person as part of this erasure of the person that really was there and did this deed but is now not alive um so he does that he goes to lunch here we meet simmy simmy is uh one of winston's friends at work i guess colleague he is a newspeak worker so newspeak is essentially the official party language that they are currently kind of reworking and restructuring uh to eventually take over what we are talking now which would be considered old speak uh, so Newspeak is the party's language that's constantly getting revised and reformed and um, refined, basically. And eventually the plan is to put it in enforcement to get everyone talking it and not talking old speak. Uh, and the reason that that is the goal is because Newspeak is fundamentally designed to decrease the amount of words in the language as much as possible. It is a devolving language rather than an evolving or living language. It is Garbage. meant, it's meant to limit the amount of ways you can express yourself because that inherently fundamentally limits the way you can think, basically. Uh, the whole nature of language and psychology and all that fun stuff. It sounds like they're going from like German, which has a word for complex thoughts. Like German, yes. the way that the German language is set up, they have like one word that will explain an entire sentence, a feeling uh, yeah. like schadenfreude, you know, which yeah, is one word, but is, you know, the feeling of happiness that you feel when someone else is in pain. Get some shit. Yeah. Get yeah. some shit for their stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Germany has been able to, the German language has been able to add all these words in that take these phrases or these feelings that you feel and make new words into them. So the German language has a whole bunch of words where yeah. we would have to say that feeling I felt when you fell over there and I felt good about it because it right. was funny seeing you get your comeuppance. Like, yeah. so we don't have one single word for that. So it's like going from German to like American to like toddler American where they have like little, 
very Tod- little language Tod- and can't. toddler is a good description it's essentially meant to be that sort of basic because and we will actually get more into this as a product of the story itself later but yeah as someone who hello um is a language instructor so language is is a living language so for instance uh the difference between uh greek now versus ancient greek so ancient greek is no longer spoken it is a fundamentally dead language no one who speaks modern greek speaks ancient Ancient Greek greek anymore yeah just like we who speak modern english do not speak old english anymore right but old english was a part of our evolution into modern English. Yeah, that's how living languages are supposed to function. Uh, They're supposed to grow and get more. Uh, And that's what happens when our dead languages evolve into the newer versions of themselves. It grows, it gets more, it starts, especially when the cultures and globalism begins, you learn words from different people, their influences and their cultures work their way into your language, evolve it more, you grow words again. It, and so the shifts in languages all are always supposed to be growing. Newspeak is purposefully designed to do the opposite of that. And it is purposefully designed that way because the less amount of words you have at your disposal to be able to describe things, the less you are able to communicate things for yourself to other people, which means the less you are able to think about and internalize and interpret your own thoughts to the point where essentially you would never be able to think complexly. You would have only these certain words at your disposal for anything else, any sort of complex emotions, any sort of complex thoughts or feelings that would go against the party would not be possible because there would not be a word to exist for that, basically. So that's Simi, fun friend, right? And so (laughs) Winston is hanging out with Simi, Uh, Parsons comes, the uh, husband of the Mrs. Parsons, Parsons is like the total opposite of Winston, basically in every way. He is Winston very much thinks that like there's a part, you know, right now, essentially, where Winston is kind of listening to Simi talk and he's all excited. And Winston thinks to himself passingly like Simi is too smart. He's going to eventually get vaporized. There's something about him. There's too there's too much of an air of intellectualism. They won't let that slide. I he'll definitely get vaporized eventually. Whereas Parsons, Winston considers would never get vaporized because Parsons is the perfect like party person, essentially. So he talks to them a little bit about his kids and how wonderful, quote unquote, his kids are. His kids love to turn people into the thought police, uh, you know, to get them murdered, fun stuff, good times, just kids being kids, that sort of thing. And Winston, uh, while at lunch here with his quote-unquote friends, sees the dark-haired girl staring at him. Uh, He notes this. He doesn't like it. He goes home eventually. Uh, He writes about this encounter with a prostitute that he had one time. In this, uh, we learn that Winston is actually technically married. 
Uh, he was married to a woman named Catherine. And the reason that he is still technically married, but she is not here is because of the nature of what uh, relationships and sex in the party is like. So the prostitute encounter he writes about is essentially he goes to um, the, the parole district, which is the poor people district, and he pays for a prostitute. And it's this really old lady who has a bunch of makeup on and it's super fucking gross. And he doesn't like it at all, but he does it. And it makes him really upset with himself. And he thinks about his marriage to Catherine in society, in their society. Dating is not a thing. You're not allowed to have relationships like that. Relationships are strictly regulated by the party. If you are going to be married, it has to be approved by the party you cannot have actual like feelings for each other because that would be against party doctrines. And the only way you're allowed to have sex is if you are married. And the only reason you should be having sex is to procreate, to make more party members. That's it. <laughs> um, quite Republican. Other, otherwise, you should not enjoy sex whatsoever. It should be repulsive to you, essentially. <laughs> That, that makes no that that's oh literally exactly what it is yeah fucking, <laughs> it's insane. fucking uh ben shapiro when uh wop came out and he was oh, like yeah. i like my pussies dry uh, don't what? worry ben we all knew that already particularly what? i'm sure your significant other um <laughs> oh and then his wife who is a gynecologist or an OBGYN or some shit was like oh yeah like we have we have dry sex. What? Oh my girl. <laughs> what? Who hurt you? That wasn't your husband. <laughs> like yikes. Yikes. What a problem. So anyway. Sex is for more than procreation, people. Clearly. That's why there's yeah. a lot of people who are married who don't have fucking kids. But see that type of those types of feelings are not feelings that the party can control. And so yeah. therefore they cannot be allowed. So in this thought process, we learn about Catherine because he has to think about her because he remembers the prostitute encounter. It reminds him that he, you know, was married to this one or is married to this woman that he doesn't like. They don't like each other. Uh, they don't enjoy sex with each other, even though they force themselves to have sex like at least once a month or something Yikes. for the party. Uh, and then eventually they just don't like each other enough so that she just goes away. And he's just like, all right. And so, like, they're separated, but they're technically still married. And he's, like, just never seen her again. It's been, like, I don't know, like, seven years or something since she left. Jesus. Yeah. And he thinks about the prostitute encounter, which is in the parole district. So he also here, Orwell, takes the opportunity to tell us about proles. Uh, so the prole, if you uh, have not caught on yet, is short for proletariat. So proles make up about, like, 89% of the population in this society. They are the impoverished level. They're labor, essentially. And they're treated like not humans. It's, they're, they're talked of as non-humans, essentially. The lower they, class. Yes. They are there to work, and that's it. And it's interesting because they are less scrutinized than party members are. There are places, for instance, in the parole district where there are not even telescreens in every room. There are some buildings in the Pearl District that don't have any telescreens in them at all. 
they're much less scrutinized because they are not educated and they are not essentially given the resources that would give them the ability to like understand the fact that should they want to, they are 89% of the population and they could very fucking definitely take over the society if they wanted to, but they can't because they have no fucking way of being able to do that. It's just not there for them by design. We would essentially be them. We would be proles, essentially. So anyway, Winston finishes writing about this prostitute encounter in his diary, and he's just sitting here like he's really annoyed because he's trying to figure out what life was like before Big Brother. Because what they are taught in children's books, in fact, he picks up a children's textbook. He like borrowed it from Mrs. Parsons or something. And the children's textbook is not fun. It's psycho, basically. And all it is is just that, like, oh, you know, before Big Brother, it was a big savage mess. There there were these people called capitalists, and they were evil monsters, and they ate babies, and they hurt everyone, and it was just not good. I mean, And then Big Brother came and and liberated everyone. Capitalism is a problem, but... Oh, What's happening in this book is not the solution. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, that's essentially it. So he like he looked in the kid's textbook thinking, like, is there going to be anything about what happened before Big Brother? And he's reading all this and he's like, no, I guarantee none of this is real. In fact, I can spot the places where I wrote part of this, (laughs) you know, type of like vibe. Yeah. Um, So education is just absolutely insane. He thinks about this and it reminds him of a moment that he had where when he was at work he had one moment where he had tangible proof in his hands of something that the party was saying was not the truth so the essential scene is that there were these three well-known guys who had essentially turned traitor to the party the story behind how they turned traitor was they, you know, like went to Canada or something and got on a plane into one of, you know, Eurasia or wherever to like help them try and fight against Big Brother. And for that crime, they were executed and they were put away, you know, forever. And one day, Winston got a copy somehow in all of the stuff that you know, he got from the government for his day's work, there was a picture. And this picture was of those three specific party members with another high-ranking party official on that day that they had said they were flying to Eurasia (laughs) and becoming traitors to Big Brother. So they were obviously not doing that. They were obviously at this big party function with these party people. He has that picture. It is dated. It is tangible in his hands. Uh, and it's significant for that. And essentially what happens is he panics when he realizes the significance of this and he just tosses it in the burner where he's supposed to toss all of the other stuff that he burns after he fakes it and erases it. And now he is essentially kicking himself and just like, if, if I had been able to keep my wits about me for just five more seconds, 
I could have figured out a way to like smuggle that shit back here to my place. And, you know, I, I would have at least had that one tangible thing in my hands that I could remind myself that I'm not crazy, basically. Um, so he, you know, sits around and starts writing in his diary again. Um, we're not going to go into it. Uh, it's just kind of more of the same kinds of thoughts. But there are two quotes of some of what he writes uh, that are pretty good. And I, uh, we can kind of talk more about these a little later, uh, but I just want to note them now. One thing he writes is, I understand how they do it. I do not understand why they do it. The other thing he says is, freedom is the freedom to say that two plus two make four. If that is granted, all else should and must follow. So uh, the next day, uh, Winston is still on his kick of wanting to uh, learn about the time before Big Brother. So he goes to the parole district because he's a big badass criminal now. Why not continue to be a criminal uh, and go to places that he's not allowed to go? Because technically speaking, party members are not allowed to go to the parole district. <laughs> uh, but he's just like, what the fuck ever? I went there already once because that's where I bought the fucking diary. So I'm just going to go over there again. Uh, he goes in there. He's looking for old people essentially, because only old people at this point would have lived in a time essentially before Big Brother got into power. As he's walking through the parole district, a bomb drops <laughs> and like a bunch of people like die, like several, like tens of people, basically, like several dozens, let's say, just die. And he's relatively unscathed. He kind of gets knocked back a little bit. But he kind of picks himself up and is just like, uh, because this is par for the course. Because remember, they're at war, uh, you know, supposedly. So he gets up and he like walks and there's this really disgusting, gory uh, moment where he, you know, is walking and stumbling back onto the sidewalk after he was like blown into the street. And there's this, you know, severed hand that is sitting uh, in the road and he just like kicks it into the gutter to like get it out of the way. Yeah, it's um, grotesque. So he keeps on his merry way after the bomb dropped and he goes to a pub because that's obviously what you do after you get bombed. And he finds an old dude in a pub and he sits and he starts trying to talk to this old dude about the times before Big Brother. And the old dude is just essentially no help. Um, he has some memories of that time, but there's no way for Winston to be able to like ask the questions that he really wants to ask without obviously like tipping this old man off that he is a party trader and things are not looking good, you know? And so the old man is just no help basically. So Winston kind of gives that up he goes, uh, he leaves the pub, he goes to this antique shop, basically. And it's the same shop that he bought the diary in. It's run by this prole named Mr. Charrington. And he is like looking through the antiques. And it's noted that Winston like enjoys Mr. Charrington's company, but he doesn't really understand why. And essentially what he's describing is just that like, he, like Mr. Charrington is his friend 
Like, <laughs> like he has a friend. He like enjoys the dude's company. They have fun talks, you know, like, but he doesn't really have a way to express that. And it's not very prudent of him to be able to express that as a party worker. So he like is very awkward about it, but he, that's why he goes there. So he buys a paperweight, which is also a crime. Uh, who fucking needs a paperweight? Uh, not a party member, unless you clearly want to kill Big Brother, obviously. So uh, he, you know, sits around and talks to Mr. Charrington for a bit. In fact, Mr. Charrington is like, hey, um, let me know if you ever want to look at some of like the stuff that I have upstairs, because I have a bunch of stuff up there that's really interesting that I don't put down here. And uh, Winston's like, what the fuck do you mean? And Mr. Charrington's like, well, yeah, come on, I'll show you. They go above the to the room above the shop, and it's essentially this little like like studio apartment kind of, and it's like old timey. It's got a bunch of old, you know, furniture. It's all furnished, and it's got a bunch of old decorations and stuff in it. And Mr. Charrington is like, yeah, I mean, me and my wife lived here above the shop when she was alive but now she's not alive and I don't live in here anymore because I live somewhere else and like I just need to get rid of this stuff so like yeah if you ever want to come in and take a look around and hear more you can look now or you know just you know ask me whenever you want and you can come up here and like look at stuff and take stuff Winston is instantly floored by the existence of this room because there's no telescreen in it that he can see and Winston is like, holy shit, in this room, I am not being watched right now. And that's just mind blowing to him. So it makes him very uncomfortable and he leaves kind of abruptly. And on his way home, he sees in the parole district where she has no business being the dark haired girl walking around. And so now he is like three kinds of freaked out so hard, 1000% sure that she is a thought police and you know a spy that is here probably to kill him and he briefly contemplates killing her to like kind of nip it in the bud now (laughs) but then he just decides not to and he just kind of keeps going like he like nothing's wrong and he goes home and nothing happens the next week he is walking around in work and dark-haired girl trips right in front of him in the hall when they're alone and He's like, what the, so he like helps her up and she's like, ah, sorry, I'm, you know, fucking clumsy, oops. And as he's helping her up, she slides him a note into his hand and he is like, what the actual fuck? So he, you know, plays it cool. He goes to his fucking desk. He doesn't even look at the note until like hours later because he just wants to make sure that nobody fucking sees that he got a fucking note from her and he opens it up and he's thinking like, this is it. She's telling me I have, you know, 24 hours to live or something crazy like that. Say goodbye to all your loved ones or something. No, what the note says is just three words. They say, I love you. And instantaneously, Winston is like his entire world shifts. He absolutely now does not hate her anymore (laughs) and is very much now like, holy fuck, I have to be able to talk to her about this and I have to see her again and be able to talk to her, talk to her, talk to her without being watched. Candidly. Yeah. So they essentially for the next couple weeks, basically do this really 
really crazy stealth dance in public, in work, in the community square where they're supposed to spend time, etc. They do this crazy stealth dance where they'll, where they'll pass by each other and exchange little phrases or be standing around each other doing their different things. And so they'll be able to have an exchange. And through this, they work out a time and a place to meet. It is this place that is like basically way off in bumfuck nowhere natureville, essentially. And so it's very much like, you know, take the cab to, you know, eight blocks that way and then get on the train and ride the train all the way back to your original point and then, you know, um, bicycle yourself um, uphill, you know, for five hours, that kind of shit, basically, <laughs> yeah. to get there. They get there. Finally, they're in the middle of nowhere. And she's like, it's okay. You know, we're literally in the middle of nowhere. There's just no way. There's obviously no cameras here. There's not microphones. You know, there's nowhere for them to be able to have hit any any microphones here. And so, like, essentially, they meet each other. Her name is Julia. And he's like, uh, what the fuck? And she's just like, yeah, I've just loved you for a long time. I could tell that you are not like them. And Julia also apparently hates the party. She is a very promiscuous young woman. She's like 26 or something. And she's like, oh, yeah, I I fuck a bunch of party members all the time. They're all a bunch of hypocrites, basically. And this actually incredibly turns Winston on because anything that is not good right or how it would be defined as good by the party is something at this moment that is just he's all about so they hang out for a few hours and bang it out and it's great i was gonna say if they don't have fucking sex in this forest right now i'll be mad oh i mean no listen they it's like it happens like in five minutes of them like finally getting there basically yeah <laughs> like, that makes they spend sense. some time later and they're like you know like looking around and like talking to each other learning more about them and they like bang a few more times or whatever but yeah it's it's very much a like they get there and they start stripping yeah. <laughs> basically <laughs> and so with this winston starts an affair with her and this affair goes on for months. They essentially do it the same way that they did it this time, where they will, you know, sometimes it'll go a really long time between the times that they're actually able to see each other, simply because it's just not safe. And they'll meet, they'll, you know, find different places that they're able to meet out of watching eyes, basically, even if just, you know, for a couple minutes, you know. Is she married as well? Or is it just no. him? She is not married. In fact, she is part of what is called um, the Anti-Sex League. Uh, so she's she's essentially vowed to never, ever have sex so she's in her a, entire life. She's a nun. She's a nun, basically. Got it. Uh, so, well, she's a quote-unquote nun. But anyway, yeah. eventually, this is all too much for Winston. And he is just, they both need more because they love each other. And Winston remembers the room that Mr. Charrington has above his antique shop. And so he asks Mr. Charrington if he'd be willing to rent Winston the room under the table. You know, I'll pay you some fucking money. I get to hang out in the room and do whatever the hell I want with whoever the hell I want. And nobody talks about it. And Mr. Charrington is like, deal. So he rents Mr. Charrington's room for them for like the day. And 
he is in there just waiting because remember this room doesn't have a telescreen in it and it's furnished there's a bed there's you know stuff to make food there's a fireplace you know it's it's crazy it's like their own little house together right and so it's fun she you know comes and they start that they make that their place after that basically one time that they're there a rat has gotten into the room somehow and we learn that rats are Winston's biggest fear. We learn this essentially, it is not explained explicitly why, but it is very heavily implied that the reason rats are Winston's biggest fear is because when he was younger, when he was a boy, remember that war was happening and you know he like lost his mother and his baby sister and whatnot. And you know everything was decimated in England rats roamed everywhere and like the bigger rats will like eat babies and shit and it's heavily implied that he's seen rats do this type of stuff horrific when he was younger and so it's his number one like his biggest phobia he like when the rat happens it's not even anywhere near him and like julia handles it like she throws a shoe at it or something like you know like knocks it out or whatever but he doesn't even see it and he almost has a panic attack about it basically so anyway outside of that they're hella cute we get some hella cute scenes with them just being in love um in a dystopian society where love is forbidden you know what i'm saying uh months more go by simi remember our new speak friend is eventually as winston pegged vaporized one day he is just gone and no one talks about him and so uh he and julia keep meeting they talk and talk more that they do want to rebel. They want to, you know, learn if the brotherhood is real or not. And if it is real, how can they join it? You know, because they want to not be living this anymore. At least if they're on the run or whatever, as rebels, they're living their own lives and they're trying to do something, you know? So they're just going with the flow at this point because they don't really know how to figure any of that stuff out, but they're, you know, they have each other essentially. And then one day, as Winston is walking around at work, O'Brien stops him in the hallway. We remember O'Brien as the guy that Winston is pretty sure thinks like he does, but is an inner party member, right? A higher ranking official. O'Brien stops him one day and he starts talking to him very innocuously. This is the first conversation that Winston and O'Brien have ever had together. (laughs) But O'Brien starts talking to him about like, oh, I read your piece the other day in the Times. It was really great. Uh, I noticed that, you know, some of the words you use are a little outdated, actually. Um, Have you gotten like the new like Newspeak Dictionary uh, edition? And Winston's like, no, actually, I I only have the the second latest edition. And O'Brien is like, oh, well, since I'm in a party, like we get the latest ones before anyone else does. Do you want to borrow mine or like use it until you get your own copy when it comes out? And Winston's like, yes. And O'Brien's like, great. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so here's where I live. Just stop by my place and like leaves. And Winston is like, obviously, this is it. Like, oh, shit. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. O'Brien is like, this is it. I know it. I know O'Brien is on our side. O'Brien must be part of the rebellion and he's pegged me out as also being someone who's against the party. Why else would he fucking invite me to his apartment? It's random as fuck. You know what I'm saying? So he tells Julia, Julia agrees. They agree that, you know, they're going to go together 
as a united front. And so they go. When they go, first of all, O'Brien has like a servant. It's very strange. And it's very racist. It's like a Eurasian servant. But the first thing that O'Brien does is he has his servant turn their telescreen off in his room. And Winston is like, holy shit, you can turn yours off? And O'Brien's like, yeah, yeah, we're allowed to. There are limits, right? And, you know, like I couldn't do it probably more than like 30 or 45 minutes before I would have to explain myself. But yeah, we as inner party members get privileges that you guys don't get, basically. Yeah. And so he turns the fucking telescreen off and they sit and O'Brien is just like, so, you know, you're here for what I think you're here for, right? And they're like, the Brotherhood, yeah. And he's like, great. So are you sure you want to do this? And they're like, absolutely. And it's kind of this like moment where they have this reckoning of like what it will mean essentially to become part of this rebellion. O'Brien is like, uh, you know, I don't want to mince words with you here. Like, I don't want you to think that you're going to, you know, storm the Capitol or something tomorrow and see, you know, Big Brother dead on the floor and be liberated. You will probably, odds are, die and never see any sort of movement on us taking down Big Brother because that's just the nature of this. They're too, they have too much power. They have too much control. This is a slow rebellion that will take a very, very long time and many, many, many unnamed faceless soldiers doing their works in the wings to be able to get people eventually to that kind of place. And Winston and Julia, you know, do take it seriously. And they're kind of like, you know, we understand we're, we're about it. We, we get that. The one thing is that like when he's trying to essentially make sure that they're that they understand what they're doing, he like rattles off this list of like, okay, so you're willing to kill someone. You're willing to kill a child. You're willing to pour acid on a child, uh, on a baby. You know, you're willing to do this and do that and do this and do that. And Winston and Julia are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The one thing that they say they will not do is they will not split up. That is the one thing that they will tolerate. And O'Brien is like, I mean, I can't promise you anything. And they said, well, I mean, we'll figure that out when we get to it. But like, we're not going to split ourselves up. Like we're together forever. And O'Brien is like, all right, cute. I guess whatever. Anyway, here's Goldstein's book. And it's the Newspeak Dictionary, basically just hidden. And then essentially like the pages are like, wrapped within the pages it's really fucking crazy and he's like take it read it you're welcome basically and then uh you'll know when we need you or what to do because you'll get contacted and then otherwise just keep doing whatever the fuck it is you're doing and that's it and he's like yeah just make sure you get that book back to me like i don't know in a month or something so they leave and they're just like craziness winston can't even read the book immediately because right after this incident, like the next day, they have a war change. Suddenly, we are now at war with East Asia, not Eurasia. Suddenly, Eurasia is our ally. So this means that everyone in the Ministry of Truth is now working overtime times a thousand because they are having to rewrite a shit ton of stuff to reflect the fact that they have always been at war with East Asia rather than Eurasia. And so he and Julia like literally spend like a week where they are just working like literally 24 seven. Control F stuff. replace yeah. Yeah, Eurasia with East Asia. <laughs> you would think, but they don't have computers like that. What garbage. Yeah. That sucks. They, 
he he essentially has like a dictaphone like he speaks into like like a horn and it like types out his shit basically <laughs> has text really- to speech but doesn't have search and replace what garbage is Listen, this <laughs> orwell was doing what he could man it was 1949 <laughs> i mean that's fair that's fair. Technology did not evolve the way that a lot of people thought it was going to. So yeah. Anyway, so it takes them a while before they're even able to get back into the Charrington's room. And so he can start reading the book. So he gets there. Winston is reading Goldstein's book and it is mega, mega. Essentially, it is explaining in great detail a bunch of shit that Winston kind of already knew, but having it now on paper as being solidified is like, you're not crazy. Everyone else thinks like this too. This is, these are the facts. For him is just really validating. Essentially what they learn is that uh, Oceania is one of three major global superpowers. Oceania, East Asia, of course, and Eurasia. These are the three powers of the globe at this point. All other countries or independent areas have been taken by them. There's only one area of the globe that does not belong to any of them, and it is essentially the disputed area. This is the area that they are fighting the war over, and it's like Africa, basically. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, like, uh, essentially, Africa and parts of like the Middle East. And which so, there have been wars fucking raging over the Middle East for constantly, constantly since the dawn of time. And this was what, 1949? So George Orwell was like, oh, the Tehran conference? Here you go. <laughs> Here, yeah. I'm just going to make a book about it. Yeah. Well, it's been 70 basically. years and we're still fucking fighting that shit. So, yeah. So it's explained that that is essentially what happens. That disputed area is where all of the war takes place. But essentially that the war is not in and of itself really a war. Because each of the three superpowers would never, ever be able to overtake. Like their goal is, of course, to overtake the other two and become the only power but simultaneously, they also know that that is just never going to happen. But what they need is war to maintain the necessity to essentially keep their societies in perpetual breakdown and perpetual need of the government. So this is why the allies, the allyship is constantly shifting. This is why constantly you'll gain ground in the war and then lose it back and then gain ground here and then lose it over there. This is why rations and stuff, you know, in the economy is always shifting, not even necessarily because it's actually a real thing that is occurring. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's not. It is literally just to keep everyone in a war nation mentality forever because they can justify keeping them all in complete control. Yeah. So there's only two passages from Goldstein's book that I'm going to read. So for instance, this is the beginning of it. The, the book is called The Theory, and which is, by the way, this is golden. The book is called The Theory and Practice of Oligarchical Collectivism by Emmanuel Goldstein. <laughs> yeah, it, crazy. Throughout recorded time and probably since the end of the Neolithic age, there have been three kinds of people in the world, the high, the middle, and the low. 
They have been subdivided in many ways. They have borne countless different names and their relative numbers, as well as their attitude toward one another have varied from age to age. But the essential structure of society has never altered. Even after enormous upheavals and seemingly irrevocable changes, the same pattern has always reasserted itself, just as a gyroscope will always return to equilibrium, however far it is pushed one way or the other. Yeah. <laughs> a bunch of crazy stuff. Classism is bullshit. Mm-hmm. Essentially, at this part, Goldstein is talking about um, how the fact that all of the three global superpowers are in fact very similar to each other. <laughs> they're, all of their stuff have different names, but they're all essentially the same and they all have essentially the same makeup. The high, the middle, the low. They have a party that is all about the same principles as Big Brother's party is and functions exactly the same, essentially. So the new doctrines arose partly because of the accumulation of historical knowledge and the growth of the historical sense, which had hardly existed before the 19th century. The cyclical movement of history was now intelligible or appeared to be so. And if it was intelligible, then it was alterable. But the principal underlying cause was that as early as the beginning of the 20th century, human equality had become technically possible. It was still true that men were not equal in their native talents and that functions had to be specialized in ways that favored some individuals against others. But there was no longer any real need for class distinctions or for large differences of wealth. Okay, so this is going to be kind of a longer excerpt, but there's a reason behind it because it's a really important concept. So the official ideology abounds with contradictions, even where there is no practical reason for them. Thus, the party rejects and vilifies every principle for which the socialist movement originally stood, and it chooses to do this in the name of socialism. Uh, It preaches a contempt for the working class, unexampled for centuries past, and it dresses its members in a uniform which was at one time peculiar to manual workers and was adopted for that reason. It systemically undermines the solidarity of the family, and it calls its leader by a name which is a direct appeal to the sentiment of family loyalty. Even the names of the four ministries by which we are governed exhibit a sort of impudence in their deliberate reversal of the facts. The Ministry of Peace concerns itself with war, the Ministry of Truth with lies, the Ministry of Love with torture, and the Ministry of Plenty with starvation. These contradictions are not accidental, nor do they result from ordinary hypocrisy. They are deliberate exercises in doublethink, for it is only by reconciling contradictions that power can be retained indefinitely. In no other way could the ancient cycle be broken. If human equality is to be forever averted, if the high, as we have called them, are to keep their places permanently, then the prevailing mental condition must be controlled insanity. But there is one question, which until this moment we have almost ignored. It is why? Why should human equality be averted? Supposing that the mechanics of the process have been rightly described, what is the motive for this huge, accurately planned effort to freeze history at a particular moment in time? Here we reach the central secret. As we have seen, the mystique of the party and above all of the inner party depends upon doublethink. But deeper than this lies the original motive, the never questioned instinct that first led to the seizure of power and brought doublethink. 
this motive really consists dot 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 and that is the last we get to read of goldstein's book unfortunately jesus yeah so winston's sitting here julia's sitting there with him like she's falling asleep because julia is just not a historical person she's cute um and functions on being cute basically yeah (laughs) um so but she's you know she's there with winston and winston's reading it and they're hanging out they accidentally fall asleep they fall asleep for too long they've been there too long they wake up and they're like ah shit we wasted way more time than we thought we were going to it's almost time that we have to leave fuck uh so they're kind of like getting themselves back together having some meat cute stuff and they suddenly are in fact i'll just read it because it's chilling He's like looking at the uh, proles and again, basically thinking about like, ah, man, if there's going to ever be a revolution, it lies in the proles, basically, right? And he's thinking, we are the dead. Theirs is the future. But you could share in that future if you kept alive the mind as they kept alive the body and passed on the secret doctrine that two plus two make four. We are the dead, Winston said. We are the dead, echoed Julia dutifully. You are the dead, said an iron voice behind them. They sprang apart. You are the dead, repeated the iron voice. They look. It was behind the picture, breathed Julia. It was behind the picture, said the voice. Remain exactly where you are. Make no movement until you are ordered. So this entire time, there has been a huge uh, picture of like an English church on like the mantle. There is a telescreen in this room. It is hidden behind the painting. Uh. So Mr. Charrington comes up with the thought police because Mr. Charrington is thought police. They have been caught and they are now being taken. Julia is taken in front of Julia, uh, in front of Winston's face. And then he is essentially knocked out and taken. (sighs) So when Winston wakes up next, he is in a cell. He remains in this cell essentially for a long ass time it is a cell that has like a bench around the side for you to sit on and that's kind of it it's like concrete basically or whatever and there's lights and that's it and a door obviously people come in and out of this cell hanging out with him thought police bring them in and then come and take them sometimes they go willingly sometimes they don't you know sometimes they're kicking and screaming at one point winston you know, there, a woman comes in and she's a very, like a much older woman than him. And she's kind of strange. And she's, you know, she kind of tries to chat him up and he's like, you know, we're not supposed to talk in here basically. <laughs> and, uh, but she like asks him, you know, how old he is and uh, whatnot. And that, you know, she remembers what it was like before BB and Winston tells her, you know, how old he is. And she's like, oh, you know what? that's so strange. I could be your mom. I wouldn't have guessed. And uh, Winston kind of takes a moment to contemplate and kind of looks her dead in the face. And he goes, you know what? This really could be my mom because I have no idea what happened to my mom. They probably, they could have just sent her off somewhere and she could be alive basically. So there's that little moment. One in particular moment, again, in this cell, Parsons comes in. He has been turned in by his own kid. People take him uh, you know, drop him off in there and then they take him. Everyone who leaves the cell are getting taken one by one to a place called Room 101, which everyone knows 
is the worst place, even though no one knows what is in it, just that it is the worst. Finally, the door opens and it's just Winston in there. So they obviously are coming for him. (laughs) And after the thought police come in, O'Brien walks in. And at first Winston is like, oh shit, they got you too. And O'Brien is like, oh Winston, they got me a long time ago. And that's when Winston realizes that O'Brien is also not on his side and is also a devout party member. So with that begins torture. It's brutal. We don't need to talk about it. It's a lot. At first it's physical. It's a lot of physical in like every way you can think of and you don't want to think of basically. That happens and Winston, I mean, it's just entirely, he has no concept of day, time, anything. At this point, it feels like forever that it goes on. As they're beating him, they're forcing him to confess to crazy ass that he has no idea. Like he's saying anything that they tell him to because at this point he's getting beaten day and night. Eventually the physical abuse stops, but unfortunately after that stops, the mental abuse begins. The mental abuse begins uh, with O'Brien. O'Brien is here now to effectively mentally torture and brainwash Winston. Okay. It's super fucked. I just have little snippets that I want to read from it to like help us understand how fucked it is. At one point, O'Brien, so essentially, by the way, sorry, Winston is, when he comes to in this scenario, he's strapped to this like board, basically. And like things are connected to his head and to his like fingers and stuff. And he just doesn't know what's going on. He can tell that there's like a machine humming somewhere behind him, but he has no idea what it, what it is or what it's about. <laughs> so O'Brien at one point says, first, Winston thinks he had the air of a doctor, a teacher, even a priest, anxious to explain and persuade rather than punish. I am taking trouble with you, Winston, he said, because you are worth trouble. You know perfectly well what is the matter with you. You have known it for years, though you have fought against the knowledge. You are mentally deranged. You suffer from a defective memory. You are unable to remember real events, and you persuade yourself that you remember other events which never happened. Fortunately, it is curable. You have never cured yourself of it because you did not choose to. There was a small effort of the will that you were not ready to make. Even now, I am well aware you are clinging to your disease under the impression that it is a virtue. So now we will take an example. So gaslighty as fuck. I mean, it's, it's insane. Anytime he answers or does something that is not what O'Brien needs him to do, he cranks a dial that is just in Winston's periphery. And every time he cranks the dial, immense pain floods Winston's entire body. He doesn't know how or why, it just does. And it's um, unbearable basically every single time. And the question here is, how many fingers am I holding up basically? First it's five, now how many? And, you know, obviously when you put your thumb away, it's four. Yeah. Now, if I tell you it's five, how many am I holding up? It's still four. But see, the problem with that is even if Winston lied about it, he still gets tortured. Of course he does. O'Brien can tell if he is lying and that he doesn't actually believe it. Why do you imagine we bring people to this place? O'Brien asked. To make them confess? No, that is not the reason. Try again. To punish them? No, exclaimed O'Brien. His voice had changed extraordinarily, and his face had suddenly become both stern and animated, 
No, not merely to extract your confession, nor to punish you. Shall I tell you why we have brought you here? To cure you, to make you sane. Will you understand, Winston, that no one whom we bring to this place ever leaves our hands uncured? We are not interested in those stupid crimes that you have committed. The party is not interested in the overt act. The thought is all we care about. We do not merely destroy our enemies. We change them. Do you understand what I mean by that? Brainwashing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's all sorts of levels of fucked up. So, I mean, there's there's points where he lets Winston ask him questions, but he's not really getting, you know, it's, it's dumb, silly answers. I mean, at one point, there's a part essentially like, you know, how do you know that, you know, what you're looking at basically exists? kind of moment like oh you know Winston if I wanted to float up to the ceiling right now I would do it in fact I'm doing it right now and Winston's like no you're not and he's like yes I am and essentially like what is there to tell you that you are you know that that is wrong and that I'm not actually doing that only your mind your mind as we've proven is not a place that actually functions in reality I can change reality all I fucking want all the time because reality exists in your mind. It doesn't exist in the physical world. So if I say I'm floating and you believe I'm floating, I'm floating, basically. Yeah, it's some fucked up shit. <laughs> yeah. One of the last ones that I want to read to you about the torture session, and I promise I'm almost done. It's awful. Sorry. But uh, essentially the question of why, right? We come back to, I understand the how. What I do not understand is the why. Eventually, O'Brien finally gives him an answer. The party seeks power entirely for its own sake. We're not interested in the good of others. We are interested solely in power, not wealth or luxury or long life or happiness, only power, pure power. What pure power means, you will understand presently. We are different from all the oligarchies of the past in that we know what we are doing. All the others, even those who resembled ourselves, were cowards and hypocrites. The German Nazis and the Russian communists came very close to us in their methods, but they never had the courage to recognize their own motives. They pretended. Perhaps they even believed that they had seized power unwillingly and for a limited time, and that just around the corner there lay a paradise where human beings would be free and equal. We are not like that. We know that no one ever seizes power with the intention of relinquishing it. Power is not a means, it is an end. One does not establish a dictatorship in order to safeguard a revolution. One makes the revolution in order to establish the dictatorship. The object of persecution is persecution. The object of torture is torture. And the object of power is power. Goddamn. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty crazy. Oops, sorry, I lied. There is one last one in the torture session that I had to do just because it's one that is very well known. At this moment, you know, Winston is like, you know, something will be able to beat you, essentially, like something, something will happen. The spirit of man will just essentially beat you. Uh, Before that, what kind of drives him to this is there will be no curiosity, no enjoyment of the process of life. All competing pleasures will be destroyed. But always do not forget this, Winston. Always there will be the intoxication of power, constantly increasing and constantly growing subtler. Always at every moment, there will be the thrill of victory, the sensation of trampling on an enemy who is helpless. If you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. Yeah. God damn. <laughs> this whole book is so rough. It's rough. It gets super fucking rough. So unfortunately, they break Winston or they start to, right? 
after a while, he starts changing as O'Brien is shaping him to be. Uh, so he gets tortured less and less to where he sits down in his room now. Now he has a room where he gets to kind of like live. Uh, and he like writes on a piece of paper he's allowed to have with a pencil that he's allowed to have. Freedom is, oh, because by the way, uh, in case you didn't know, I can't believe I didn't say this until now. The party's slogans, the party has three slogans and this, it's been there and it's been up and about all around. It's the stuff that's plastered on the posters everywhere. There's three slogans, war is peace, freedom is slavery and ignorance is strength. Yikes. Those are the three party slogans. And so essentially Winston sits down at one point and starts writing out freedom is slavery, two and two make five. War is peace, God is power, that kind of stuff. Unfortunately, even though he is now obviously succumbing to brainwashing, when he dreams, he is still not completely brainwashed. As when you dream, you are unconscious, right? So he still dreams of Julia, for instance, and worries about her and thinks about what they're doing to her, right? So here we go. One thing about Winston and Julia's relationship when they were together is that they, they would have these kind of philosophical conversations about like what would happen when they eventually would get caught. And they always talked about that because they, you know, they always wanted to keep themselves realistic. They always wanted to remind themselves that like this won't last forever. So let's enjoy it as much as we possibly can, right, while it's happening. And one thing they always talked about is that what the party does is they, is they have this thing where they take away the act, they take away any pleasure that they have, but there's this feeling that comes with the actions that they're also trying to target. And that bothers Winston. Uh, it's the same as what you were just listening to with all of that brainwashing craziness. So at one point they're talking about it and Winston says, the one thing that matters is that we shouldn't betray one another, although even that can't make the slightest difference. If you mean confessing, she said, we shall do that right enough. Everybody always confesses. You can't help it. They torture you. I don't mean confessing. Confessing is not betrayal. What you say or do doesn't matter. Only feelings matter. If they could make me stop loving you, that would be the real betrayal. She thought it over. They can't do that, she said finally. It's the one thing they can't do. They can make you say anything, anything, but they can't make you believe it. They can't get inside you. No, he said a little more hopefully. No, that's quite true. They can't get inside you. If you can feel that staying human is worthwhile, even when it can't have any result, whatever, you've beaten them. So Winston is remembering this moment, essentially, as he is kind of taken off to room 101, finally. So he's taken off to room 101. Room 101 is where everything ends. A murder room. Well, no. The worst thing in the world is in room 101. For everyone, the worst thing in the world is different. When O'Brien brings him in there, he's telling Winston this. And he says, for instance, Winston, the worst thing in the world for you are rats. And they start affixing this big cage on his head that essentially locks him in place where there's subsequent cages, sections in the front of it where there are huge ass, hungry, mean rats. Gross. And O'Brien is now sitting there with his hand on the lever that will open up a catch in that cage section that will let the rats come and Winston's directly to Winston's door. face and attack him. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing that Winston would be able to do about it. And it is terrifying for him. He is freaking out. 
I mean, trying everything he can. I'll confess anything you want. You know, I'll do anything. I'll say anything. O'Brien is trying to get him to understand, essentially, we don't want that from you. We do not want your obedience. We want your love. Yeah. And so eventually what happens, the thing that saves him is that in the very last possible moment in his like broken terror, uh, Winston says, do it to Julia. Bring Julia in here. I'll prove it to you that I love you. Do it to Julia. Don't do it to me. Do whatever you want with her. And that is what stays O'Brien's hand. And he says, there we go. Now you're cured. And now we jump to some indefinable time in the future where Winston has been released. He is out and about in the real world. He's sitting in a cafe, listening to the telescreen bulletins. He's cool. He's kind of like, yeah, I remember that time. That was a weird time. But he's cured now. In fact, he's even seen Julia. Uh, The passage is, he had seen her. He had even spoken to her. There was no danger in it. He knew it as though instinctively that they now took almost no interest in his doings. He could have arranged to meet her a second time if either of them had wanted to. And they essentially have the conversation when they meet each other that, you know, she goes, I betrayed you. And he goes, yeah, I betrayed you too. And she's like, they have this way of doing it. And she describes it. And he's like, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what happened. And obviously they're like, so I don't feel the same anymore. And he's like, yeah, I don't either. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, well, we, we should meet again. And he's like, yeah, absolutely. And neither of them obviously mean it. And they both know it's like going to be the last time that they see each other. And that's it. So Winston is sitting in the cafe and he's hanging out, listening to news about the war. And he is very concerned about it because the telescreen is telling everyone that he needs to be very concerned. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, so he's sitting and waiting. And finally, the news comes, right? Eventually, they get victory whatever in whatever front that they've done. So now everyone is excited. And I'm just going to read the last two paragraphs because they're haunting and they are also well known because they are very interesting. The voice from the telescreen was still pouring forth its tale of prisoners and booty and slaughter, but the shouting outside had died down a little. The waiters were turning back to their work. One of them approached with the gin bottle. Winston, sitting in a blissful dream, paid no attention as his glass was filled up. He was not running or cheering any longer. He was back in the ministry of love, with everything forgiven, his soul white as snow. He was in the public dock, confessing everything and implicating everybody. He was walking down the white-tiled corridor with the feeling of walking in sunlight and an armed guard at his back. The long-hoped-for bullet was entering his brain. He gazed up at the enormous face. Forty years it had taken him to learn what kind of smile was hidden beneath the dark mustache. Oh, cruel, needless misunderstanding. Oh, stubborn, self-willed exile from the loving breast. Two gin-scented tears trickled down the sides of his nose. But it was all right. Everything was all right. The struggle was finished. He had won the victory over himself. He loved Big Brother. Jesus Christ. So he gets murdered even after all of that? That's a great question. Does he? That's what it sounded like. Uh, Yeah. uh, People say that some believe that yes, now is when they finally come to shoot him. Some say that he's realizing now that what they've done to him has essentially been the same thing as murdering him. I was going to say that the same person. I was going to say that one. I was kind of finally realizing it. They basically assassinated him by taking away all his creativity and 
the person is an entirely different person exactly uh and that that moment is him finally realizing it and accepting it and fully becoming not himself yeah because now he loves big brother but yeah it's an incredibly ambiguous very um oft discussed ending of the story however that is only the ending of the narrative because orwell didn't stop writing 1984 here with winston there is an appendix in 1984 called the principles of newspeak and it essentially discusses all of the like reasonings behind the vocabulary behind newspeak and what it's for it's essentially this little academic essay that is appended to it and it describes the development of newspeak you know it's essentially described as artificial minimalistic designed to ideologically align thought with principles of their society of Ingsoc by stripping down the English language in order to make the expression of heretical or rebellious thoughts you know thoughts going against big brother impossible and that the idea that language the structure of language can be used to influence thought is known as linguistic relativity. And it is a very real thing in real life. Yeah. Uh, and essentially Orwell just goes, oh, by the way, this is what Newspeak was all about. <laughs> and then Christ. that's when he leaves us. <laughs> so um, that's the end of the book. I know. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I'm too drunk for this. <laughs> So essentially, Orwell, when he, you know, like I said, he was born in 1903 in colonial India, right? Uh, When he goes to boarding school in England, that's kind of when he realizes for the first time that class prejudice in general, and in particular in British society, is just absolute bullshit. Ooh, boarding (laughs) school during World War One in England? That's fucking rough. Yeah. And so he like he realizes and learns in that experience what abuse of power is, how fucked up British society is, classism, how fucked up classism is. Uh, He graduates uh, from Eton in 1921 and immediately signs on with the Burmese Indian Imperial Police. So in his time in Burma affected him profoundly. It changed him. He hated every moment of it. It solidified his abhorrence for imperialism he did a lot of incredibly awful things that he readily admits he did readily admits that he could have you know left at any moment but he did them because that's what his job was and human beings are awful and it kind of fucks his brain up uh and he leaves it eventually with the pretty big resolve to spend the rest of his life telling people about how awful human beings are and how awful imperialism is in particular. Uh, There's in fact a very well-known like short memoir piece that he's written called um, Shooting an Elephant. If you've never read it, you should look it up. Um, It's a really good read. It's really awful. Uh, Trigger warning if you're somebody who has a difficult time reading um, descriptions, graphic descriptions of animal violence or violence or pain or torture of animals then you might want to not read it and just kind of get a synopsis online uh but if that's something that doesn't particularly trigger you i mean no one i'm sure likes that but uh if it's not something particularly triggering you should definitely give it a read because it is a very poignant story it's a really hard story to read uh and it kind of really sets the mood for you to kind of get you to understand who orwell is basically 
so after he comes back from Burma, that's when he kind of devotes himself to becoming a writer. Uh, in 1944, for instance, uh, Orwell began work on essentially what would become 1984. He writes this letter to a friend of his, which I'm going to read. Uh, it's short. He writes it in May of 1944, in fact, answering essentially like he's having a conversation with his friend in these letters. And this is what he says. You ask whether totalitarianism, leader, worship, etc., are really on the upgrade and instance the fact that they are not apparently growing in the country and the U.S. I must say I believe or fear that taking the world as a whole, these things are on the increase. Hitler, no doubt, will soon disappear, but only at the expense of strengthening Stalin, the Anglo-American millionaires, all sorts of petty furors of the type of de Gaulle, all the national movements everywhere, even those that originate in resistance to German domination, seem to take non-democratic forms to group themselves round some superhuman Führer. Hitler, Stalin, Salazar, Franco, Gandhi, de Valera are all varying examples. And to adopt the theory that the end justifies the means. Everywhere the world movement seems to be in the direction of centralized economies, which can be made to work, quote unquote, in an economic sense, but which are not democratically organized and which tend to establish a caste system. With this go the horrors of emotional nationalism and a tendency to disbelieve in the existence of objective truth, because all the facts have to fit in with the words and prophecies of some infallible Führer. Already history has in a sense ceased to exist i.e. there is no such thing as a history of our own times, which could be universally accepted. And the exact sciences are endangered as soon as military necessity ceases to keep people up to the mark. Hitler can say that the Jews started the war, and if he survives, that will become official history. He can't say that two and two are five, because for the purposes of, say, ballistics, they have to make four. But if the sort of world that I am afraid of arrives, a world of two or three great superstates, which are unable to conquer one another, two and two could become five if the Fuhrer wished it. That, so far as I can see, is the direction in which we are actually moving, though, of course, the process is reversible. As to the comparative immunity of Britain and the USA, whatever the pacifists, et cetera, may say, we have not gone totalitarian yet, and this is a very hopeful symptom. I believe very deeply, as I explained in my book, random book, in the English people and in their capacity to centralize their economy without destroying freedom in doing so. But one must remember that Britain and the USA haven't been really tried yet. They ha haven't known defeat or severe suffering. And there are some bad symptoms to balance the good ones. To begin with, there is the general indifference to the decay of democracy. Do you realize, for instance, that no one in England under 26 now has a vote? And that so far as one can see, the great mass of people of that age don't give a damn about this? Secondly, there is the fact that the intellectuals are more totalitarian in outlook than the common people. On the whole, the English intelligentsia have opposed Hitler, but only at the price of accepting Stalin. Most of them are perfectly ready for dictatorial methods, secret police, system systematic falsification of history, etc., so long as they feel that it is on our side. Indeed, the statement that we haven't a fascist movement in England largely means that the young at this moment look for their Fuhrer elsewhere. One can't be sure that that won't change, nor can one be sure that the common people won't think 10 years hence as the intellectuals do now. 
I hope they won't. I even trust they won't. But if so, it will be at the cost of a struggle. If one simply proclaims that all is for the best and doesn't point to the sinister symptoms, one is merely helping to bring totalitarianism nearer. You also ask if I think the world tendency is toward fascism and why do I support the war? Or why do I support the war if I think that? Basically, it is a choice of evils. I fancy nearly every war is that. I know enough of British imperialism not to like it, but I would support it against Nazism or Japanese imperialism as the lesser evil. Similarly, I would support the USSR against Germany because I think the USSR cannot altogether escape its past and retains enough of the original ideas of the revolution to make it a more hopeful phenomenon than Nazi Germany. <laughs> I think it have thought ever since the war began in 1936 or thereabouts that our cause is the better, but we have to keep on making it better, which involves constant criticism. That is just literally a letter Orwell wrote to one of his friends. <laughs> and this is essentially where many people say, obviously, for, for very clear reasons, the sort of thesis and ideas that are essentially part of 1984 began for him as a concept, as a larger work. Uh, there's many references in there that I'm sure, having just listened to me go on and on, clearly make sense to you and show up in 1984. Two plus two makes five, you know, uh, three superpowers, etc. Right. After this, in 1946, uh, Orwell writes a memoir, a short little memoir piece called Why I Write. And I'm going to not read the whole thing because it's not necessary, but I'm going to read um, two brief clips from it just because they're important. Um, none of this is. So basically, <laughs> Orwell talks at one point about what his philosophy is on writing, essentially, and that he kind of goes, you know, I've kind of thought about it for a long time. I think that there are four great motives for writing, or at any rate, for writing prose and that they exist basically in different varying degrees. For every writer, the proportions for one writer is going to vary from time to time according to the situation that they're in, et cetera, et cetera. But the four um, motives are sheer egoism, aesthetic enthusiasm, so just beauty in, in the world or in words, historical impulse to you know, see things as they are, to kind of set down true facts for posterity. And the last one, he says, is political purpose, using the word political in the widest possible sense, a desire to push the world in a certain direction, to alter other people's idea of the kind of society that they should strive after. No book is genuinely free from political bias, and the opinion that art should have nothing to do with politics is itself a political attitude. So that's one excerpt. And just another one, he kind of uh, tracks on a timeline, basically, his like thoughts and his like persona as a writer and what he's trying to do and what his motives are throughout his career. And he finally comes to, obviously, uh, you know, Animal Farm was the first book in which I actually tried with full consciousness of what I was doing to fuse political purpose and artistic purpose into one whole. I have not written a novel for seven years, but I hope to write another fairly soon. It is bound to be a failure. Every book is a failure. But I do know with some clarity what kind of book I want to write. This is in 1946, and he is quite obviously talking about 1984. 
which he finally does eventually publish in 1949. Right? He wrote most of the actual book from 1947 to 1948 uh, when he was ill, uh, severely ill actually with tuberculosis in Scotland <laughs> randomly. He was first thinking of calling it the last man in Europe. It underwent a change basically like like eight months or so before publication, uh, he was hesitating kind of between The Last Man in Europe and 1984. And his publisher essentially was like, ah, I like 1984 better. It's like kind of more commercially viable. And so Oral was like, yeah, all right, whatever. There is, in fact, an edition of Animal Farm in 1984 that was published in 2003 um, that makes a claim in the introduction that the title 1984 was chosen simply as an inversion of the year 1948 which was when he was writing it, which would make sense. The original manuscript for 1984 is the only literary manuscript of Orwell's to survive. Unfortunately, it is presently held at the John Hay Library at Brown University. So I essentially just have some information now that kind of touches on the obvious political and societal influences that are shaping 1984 and then after that, I kind of essentially cover just some fun facts. Newspeak, the appendix. The fact that it is there in the book is like a big thing uh, in critical debate. People debate constantly about why he included it, what it means. People say, in fact, that it's intended to be hopeful because Orwell is very meticulous in his writing. He doesn't make any decision on what he does non-purposefully and the entirety of the appendix is written in past tense so for instance uh, one of the quotes is relative to our own the new speak vocabulary was tiny and new ways of reducing it were constantly being devised and so people say he would not be writing it like that if he was not trying to imply essentially that for the imagined reader that the narrator is writing to newspeak and though that totalitarian government is all in the past so there is kind of that debate of like whether or not he was just kind of trying to extra fuck us up or whether he was actually trying to <laughs> be a little hopeful for us there at the end. Um, Orwell, I think, is pretty obviously a democratic socialist <laughs> at this point. If you have not kind of figured that out, let's just Hell make it yeah. clear. Um, <laughs> he modeled his authoritarian government. The most that it is modeled after is Stalinist Russia. And he has like an essay that he wrote called Notes on Nationalism, essentially, where he kind of gets the idea of newspeak and what it functions as in his um, story, because notes on nationalism that he writes talks a lot about the lack of vocabulary needed to explain the sort of like um, unrecognized phenomena of what is going on in political times that they're living in. Like it's just becoming meta meta too much going on uh and so he kind of wrote that entire essay to really talk about that and then newspeak is essentially um people say kind of is an embodiment of the like thoughts and stuff that he was writing about in that essay basically so nationalism the 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 three kind of like clear things that he's trying to highlight here is that nationalism is just no just all sorts of no. <laughs> and in fact, there are three nationalism, like types of nationalism that he is trying to hit all at once in 1984. One is what everyone would essentially already understand is the positive form of nationalism, an obsessive sense of loyalty 
to your country or some entity or your government, right? That is kind of the first level of nationalism. But Orwell America's also wants America is the greatest to... country in the world. Yeah, yeah. But Exhibit why? Exhibit A, 100%. Yes. But why? Uh, <laughs> because it is. Okay. Right. Sure. But Orwell was also wanting the reader to understand that the other two sort of sub-levels of nationalism are also just as bad and insidious and they all work together obviously to fuel the the giant monster that uh, the very dangerous monster that is that can become a totalitarian movement uh so the other two are negative nationalism so positive is of course their obsession with the one that they love and that they're loyal to negative is their is their obsessive hatred of some other entity I love and I'm loyal to this, and I hate and want to annihilate that. Uh, Anti-Semitism, perfect example of the negative nationalistic aspect. And then, of course, there is a third one, and this is what he calls transferred nationalism, which is where when you're in the middle of a nationalistic movement, you're having to swiftly redirect the emotions and the uh, reactions of your populace from one power unit to the next as your need applies. So um, for instance, Stalinism did this, um, redirecting kind of feelings of like racial animus and like class superiority among wealthy intellectuals. That kind of happened. Uh, another example is the way, of course, Trump sort of like consistently changes the focus from day to day to, you know, fake news, you know, the media is the enemy of the people, uh, Democrats are the enemy of the people, uh, you know, science is the enemy of the people, anyone who disagrees with me is the enemy of the people, uh, you know, now it's even Republicans are the enemy of the people because now I have lost the election, uh, right, so this is what he calls transferred nationalism, where you are swiftly focusing and directing the positive and negative aspects of nationalism in the ways that you need to at any given moment. Um, and all those three things are bad, is what Orwell wants you to know, just point blank. Don't do them. <laughs> so essentially during World War II, like Orwell believed he really did. He believed that the British democracy as it existed before 1939 would probably not survive World War II. Uh, <laughs> and he was off, obviously proven wrong and he admits it. He's, you know, happy that he was proven wrong, but he was very convinced that it wasn't uh, going to. Much of oceanic society, as I said, was based on um, the USSR under Stalin, who would obviously be a, you know, a big brother person. The two-minute hate in particular in Stalinism definitely embodies the, the enemies of the state sort of issues uh, that was happening there. Goldstein can, you know, look at uh, Trotsky, basically. The national record, the members of the party that like Winston had of the picture in his hand that kind of proved that they had not done the things that they had said. The 1960s purges, you know, the Soviet purges of the and the uh, the Soviet purges of the 30s as well, uh, where the leaders of like the Bolshevik revolution were similarly treated. The French Revolution kind of essentially does this too, but I think it's a little bit of a kind of weak connection so I'm not going to cover it but essentially like Robespierre when they put Robespierre to death people also argue that that is kind of a parallel there anyway the clear like important 
effect that 1984 had on the English language in general, much less literature and political theory in general and political like philosophy is just extensive, like almost unquantifiable. You probably knew a bunch of the terms that I mentioned in 1984, despite the fact not having read anything from 1984 or even knowing that it existed. Uh, you know, Big Brother talking about thought police or thought crime. Double think, double speak, and group think comes from double think in particularly. Uh, double think is the simultaneous holding and believing of contradictory beliefs at once. It, Trump is a wonderful example of someone who at least appears to very often engage in double think. And in fact, 1984 was so effective and important in culture in general that it termed the adjective Orwellian, similar to Orwell's writing in particularly 1984. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's, perpetually associated with the ideas of totalitarian, you know, governments and fascism and all of that stuff. In November 2011, the U.S. government argued before the U.S. Supreme Court that it wanted to continue utilizing GPS tracking of individuals without first seeking a warrant. And 1984, it was referenced in one of the responses by Justin Stephen Breyer about why he was against it. <laughs> From mid-2013, it was uh, publicized in America, if for anyone not American listening, that our NSA had been secretly monitoring and storing global internet traffic, including bulk data, like collection of, of email and phone call data. When that dropped in 2013, sales of 1984 increased uh, like seven times Yep, what it was within that first week of the mass surveillance leaks. Which is where the perpetual joke, like, oh, my FBI yeah. agent is listening, came from. Exactly, exactly. Again, it showed to have a huge spike, of course, in 2016, when Trump was elected president. In particular, it, it started going up in 2016, and it had its highest peak of that time in 2017 after Kellyanne Conway famously or infamously, I should say, coined the phrase alternative facts uh, about her discrepancies with the media, pesky truth tellers holding her yeah. accountable for fake truth. news. So um, when it was first published, uh, it was also critically acclaimed definitely. This is one of those times when people understood immediately how important of a work it was right away, thankfully. It's obviously now become a classic literary example of political fiction and dystopian fiction. It popularized, like I said, all of those kinds of uh, references, Big Brother, Double Think, Thought Crime, um, proles. Now we're going to get into, just very briefly, like the stuff that it's won, kind of, or the claim that it's gotten, um, and then like some bad criticism of it, and then fun facts. So Time Magazine included it on its 100 best English language novels every year from 1923 to 2005. It was placed on the Modern Library's 100 best novels, reaching number 13 on the editor's list and number six on the reader's list. In 2003, the novel was listed as number eight on the Big Read survey by the BBC. 
it is a notoriously banned book. It has been banned or legally challenged as subversive or ideologically corrupting throughout its entire publication history. It stands often in the same breath with works like Brave New World, like I mentioned earlier, um, We, uh, Fahrenheit 451, Bradbury. We got a, sorry, I just have to say this because I'm a petty bitch and I hate this dude. Uh, C.S. Lewis, who thankfully gave us The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and in my opinion was one of the only great things he gave us, Mm -hmm. uh, was very critical of the novel. He did not like it. The relationship of Julia and Winston and the the party's view on sex. He thought it lacked credibility and that the setting was odious rather than tragic. That's a quote, by the way. I mean, it was it was an affair. (laughs) So I could see like people from the late 40s, 50s, 60s, like being, oh, my God, what a what a horrible relationship you know just ignoring the fact that the context that the relationship is happening within is like this shitty forced marriage kind of situation only for procreation um you know those those people who would criticize this relationship are ignoring all of that and immediately jumping just you know singling in honing in on that one specific thing like oh he was already married he he was horrible that that was a horrible relationship i'm like yeah, I mean, essentially what like Lewis's kind of whole take is if you don't know, C.S. Lewis is kind of a raging, um, like sort of right wing conservative Christian type, basically. And uh, and sex, honestly, how do you not know that for him? How do you not know that <laughs> if you watched the Chronicles of Narnia, a.k.a. Lion Jesus? Like, yeah, for fucking sure. It's a whole story. It's what if seven, Jesus was just a real lion? It's a seven book story about Jesus being a lion and a devil be and the devil being a witch, like a white witch. Yeah, a white witch. Like it is the fucking most. Because fuck women and their wildly sexy ways. Oh, God. Anyway, C.S. Lewis was like, he kind of felt that it hit a little too close to home, obviously. So he was like a little offended at how the party viewed sex. uh, Because I think it was probably a criticism that is often, that was often and still is often, justifiably in my opinion, lobbied at conservative Christians that like sex is literally just for procreation and you would you that's what you would love because otherwise women must stay pure and how dare you enjoy it it's not meant for enjoyment it's meant for it's meant for making babies and if Mm. you have sex and then you have a baby but you don't want that baby too bad Mm -hmm. this is what it was for unfortunately men can't control themselves so it has to be obviously the women that are yeah the pure ones yeah Uh, forget forget the fact that i was wearing a dress that covered my entire body all the way down to my ankles and did nothing but you still rape me and like then i have a baby and i have to keep it Mm -hmm. can't can't kill that baby absolutely not fuck the patriarchy fuck it all fuck rape culture fuck all that bullshit all the all of it misogyny yeah anyway that was c.s lewis um i thought i'd share it because i love every chance i get to take a take pot shots off at c.s lewis because i hate him um (laughs) anyway uh now we get to go into fun facts there's just some fun facts they're really quick i promise and 
I just enjoyed them. Some fun, some fun for us before we head into true fun to get us totally out of this despicably tragic, um, depressing, realistic coverage of 1984. So in July of the real year 1984, just FYI, an asteroid was discovered and the person who discovered it named it after Orwell. (laughs) Uh, I thought that was interesting. The biggest thing I find interesting is that 1984 is very popular, very, very popular with rock bands. So in 1974, for instance, David Bowie released Diamond Dogs and people, it's thought that this album is loosely based on 1984. There is, you know, tracks include We Are the Dead, 1984, Big Brother, before the album was made, Main Man, which was the man, which was Bowie's management, actually planned for Bowie and uh, one of Main Man's creative consultants to co-write and direct a musical production of 1984. Unfortunately, Orwell's widow refused to give Main Man the rights for that, so they couldn't go forward and do with it. She had, uh, I don't know, I can't remember when um, Labyrinth came out, but she'd probably seen Labyrinth and was like, yeah, that man cannot touch 1984. (laughs) I love Labyrinth, just so everyone's clear. But in 1984, the real year, uh, Michael Radford directed 1984, the movie. John Hurt starred as Winston Smith. Um, He's great in it. Richard Burton is in it. He's also really great. Susanna Hamilton plays um, Julia. It's, I mean, it's, it's all right. It's, it's cool. I mean, it's cool as it can be. Yeah, essentially. In 1984, Ridley Scott, wonderful alien Ridley Scott, directed a television commercial titled 1984, and he did this to launch Apple's Macintosh computer. The advert, in fact, said 1984 won't be like 1984. Basically, it was all about suggesting that, you know, the Mac and, you know, Apple would be freedom from Big Brother which was obviously (laughs) the the IBM PC, um, obviously. Which is so laughable now. It's insane. Since uh, Siri listens to all of your conversations and is recording everything that you say to the government. Mm -hmm. How fun. So um, there is an episode of Doctor Who that has some 1984 references, just FYI. That's Uh, fun. Double Doctor Who reference. (laughs) yeah exactly here's more rock bands just loving 1984 radiohead had a a single in 2003 called two plus two equals five and hail to the thief it was that album in 2009 in september of that year muse which is an english progressive rock band muse had the resistance the song on the resistance included many uh ones that were influenced by 1984 Marilyn Manson wrote in his uh, autobiography, which is called The Long Hard Road Out of Hell. This is a quote. He says, I was thoroughly terrified by the the idea of the end of the world and the Antichrist. So I became obsessed with it, reading prophetic books like 1984 by George Orwell. So Manson is on that boat. And then, of course, probably the biggest one and probably the most well-known 
reference and uh, impact from the book into pop culture, the worldwide reality hit television show, Big Brother, which is a group of people living together in a large house, isolated from the world outside and continuously watched for everyone else's enjoyment for no reason. I have never (laughs) understood the allure of that show. Uh, you know? I don't get it, but reality TV for the most part is lost on me. Like, I don't, I just don't get it. I'm too old. I can't even say I'm too old because old people like reality TV. I just, (laughs) I don't care. There are some, there are some reality TVs that I that I fuck with and then there are some that I don't get either and I definitely don't get Big Brother I (laughs) okay so like when I was in when I was a kid like uh middle school high school I loved uh the real world and road rules I like I loved both of those shows and yeah I remember watching the real world with you a lot yeah and especially the show that they came up with after both of those shows like after this each season had ended which would be the real world road rules challenge where they would pit like the people from the house of the real world against the the people from the road rules and they would like do all these stupid challenges yeah it was it was like similar to i guess with the amazing race or whatever but it was just like stupid like 20 somethings doing shit yeah but all the rest of that like survivor was never like a thing that i really cared about even though it was huge i hate all of those shows that are like The Bachelor, The Bachelorette, all this dumb shit where we just like shove 50 whores in a house and see how many people like who doesn't get pregnant. I don't care. Right. Like, that's this is stupid. Right. You're not sure. finding love. You're not making real connections. This is right. stupid. But it's so it's so <laughs> hypocritical of me because I'm like, yeah, I don't understand the allure. And then like fucking TNT or USA or one of those goddamn channel networks released like um, Temptation Island or something like a year or so ago. And I was like, oh, that's so dumb. That's so stupid. And then like I was working really late one night and it like came on after whatever it was that I was watching. Yeah. And I like hella became obsessed with it and it was dumb it's there's no reason for me to be obsessed with it but I just like couldn't stop watching it yeah (laughs) it's so dumb no uh the only reality television that I have attached myself to is uh music competitions I'm 100% in on like arts competitions like uh the mask singer the voice uh like so you think you can dance like all of that shit give it to me I don't I don't care so much about the interpersonal relationships and they're like the people's backstory, but I love seeing the arts covered in that way and becoming like a huge deal to just like the average American. Like you can go into any home and ask any random person who's never had any dealings with the arts, you know, like what they think of the Samba or whatever and they're like oh i remember seeing that on dancing with the stars and they could tell you like a little bit about that dance yeah yeah they can tell you those are the those are the kind of reality shows i definitely fuck with too yeah for sure i agree though it's like those ones anything that has that kind of revolves around getting people interested in the arts and then i really for whatever reason otis and i are low-key obsessed with hoarders yeah for sure kevin and And i are too and it's because it's like the least scripted 
yeah like reality tv that exists i mean these folks just show up to these people's houses that are a shit show and then they try to help them out of their shit show house like try to fix up their house and then yeah sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't and it's not just like oh here's 20 people the same 20 people we're gonna watch every week and they're gonna like you know one time these two people are gonna like have a of relationship and then the next week oh now there's drama because you know the girl went off and slept with somebody else i'm like i don't give a fuck about any of that i don't need storylines to my reality tv like something different every week i'm good that's about it (laughs) (laughs) oh man well you're welcome that was 1984 now that we're all thoroughly depressed it's a lot um katie is here with her fun drunken movie to lift our spirits back up i'm gonna try this is a big task for this movie and i don't (laughs) i don't know that this movie is necessarily up to this task uh (laughs) but we'll see okay so i chose for this week i was trying to look for something that was happy um and kind of heartwarming and yeah for sure but also something that I really wanted to watch and I've been wanting to watch this movie for weeks and like just haven't had the time haven't had a reason to go and watch this film but I chose to watch 2004's A Cinderella Story starring (gasps) Hilary Hilary Duff and Chad Michael Murray. Oh my god I love this movie. I I know me too me too and when I was trying to pick a movie for this to go along with 1984 it was really hard because I kept like I kept coming across like sports movies that I had you know had wanted to watch and I was like no nah, that doesn't really fit like I don't really want to do that I don't really want to go into sports I don't really want to deal yeah. with that and then I was torn between a couple of different Disney darlings um, like movies from the different Disney darlings of the late 90s early 2000s and I yeah. was like you know what I've really wanted to watch for a long time cinderella story because i haven't watched it in a while so yeah here we go into a cinderella story (laughs) so if you have just been living under a rock for seemingly your entire life and never heard the story of cinderella (laughs) how um i don't i don't understand i have a lot of questions this story's been around for hundreds of years and I don't, I don't know how you escaped it. So a Cinderella story is a modern, I'm going to use that in quotes because this did come out in 2004. So it is modern, but it's also 16 years ago at this point. So the technology and things that are happening in this film are not necessarily modern to 2020 standards, but they're modern in terms of the Cinderella story as a whole. Um, Right. The Cinderella story as a whole takes place in what can only, what I can only describe as like medieval-ish times, like kings and queens are the commonplace. And basically there's a prince and he is looking for a wife. So his parents, this is regular Cinderella, not the movie I'm doing, but I'm going to tell you the regular story and then we'll jump into the movie. So in fact, didn't I cover Cinderella as one of the grim tales in one of our episodes? I think I, I did. I think so. I can't remember, honestly, because it's been a while. I really think I did, because I remember talking about the um, fucking stepsisters chopping their feet off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. You did. Okay. 
So the regular Cinderella, basically the prince is, I don't know, late teens, uh, question mark, early 20s. He's a young man and his family is forcing him to get married. You have to get married if you want to inherit the kingdom. You know, you've got to find yourself a queen. You can't do any of this. Get on those heirs. Yeah. So they decide to host a ball and... During that ball, they'll invite all the women of the kingdom to come and try and win favor with the prince. And the prince basically has to pick one and that's going to be his bride. So he is seeing all these different girls, you know, rich, beautiful debutantes. And he falls in love, like almost immediately with this girl who walks in late. She's dressed, you know, to the nines. He's never seen her before in his life. He doesn't understand you know, where she come from or who she is. And she doesn't say, ever say who she is. They dance, they fall in love. And then, you know, the clock strikes midnight and she has to leave. Like I have a curfew. I got to get the fuck out. She, so she runs, literally runs out of the palace and she leaves behind a shoe. Then the prince um, goes on a fucking wild manhunt looking for this woman throughout the entire kingdom trying to find the woman who fits this shoe which is absurd because how many women in your life do you know who all wear the same size shoe that's what i'm fucking saying like (laughs) jesus christ what was she like what was she was she a barbie is that how small the shoe was yeah like (laughs) otherwise i don't understand yeah so uh he stumbles upon her house which is also lived in by her evil stepmom who hates her and forces her to be a slave girl basically and her two uh evil stepsisters who are trying everything they can to marry the prince they you know they force their feet in there they cut off their toes and their and different parts of their heels and different things to fit in this shoe so that they can be the prince's wife and eventually cinderella comes down and is like oh wait a minute does that shoe fit me And then it does. And then it's like, all right, bye. Then they live happily ever after. That's basically the story. Yes. Um, A bigger bigger part of the story that they don't spend a lot of time on in most versions of Cinderella is that um, it was just her and her dad as a kid. Yes. And she grew up for a long time just having her dad. And then her dad got married to what would eventually become her evil stepmother. After her parents or her dad and her stepmother get married, her dad has an accident and dies. And then she's left under the care of her stepmom. Mm -hmm. Now this happens, her being left under the care of her stepmom happens in every single version, but a lot of the versions don't take the time to kind of build the like- Explain enough. To explain about her father. Okay. So jump to a Cinderella story, which takes place in 2004. It starts- with a young girl she's like eight question mark we don't really know and she is living with her dad dealing with you know not having a mom but they're getting along fine because it's just her and her dad they're best friends it's beautiful right then at a birthday party her dad meets what would later become her stepmom and they fall in love and they get married and the stepmom is a bitch from the get-go. Like at their wedding, she's a bitch to the little girl. And she only cares about her two daughters. So yes. whatever. So stepmom Fiona is a bitch. Then 
um, a little bit after the wedding, there is a huge earthquake in San Fernando Valley where this takes place. So they're basically in Hollywood and her father ends up dying during the earthquake. He's trying to take care of all the girls in the house and he ends up dying because he leaves his daughter in a door jam and goes to save Fiona, his wife. And then something tragic happens and he dies. From that, the little girl becomes basically the property of the stepmom and everything that the dad owned also goes to the stepmom because, you know, there was no will, there was nothing like that. So the mom gets the dad's diner that he owned and she renames it Fiona's Diner. We've jumped forward now uh, to Hilary Duff being a teen and she's now in charge of Hilary Duff's character named Sam and basically forces her to be a slave girl Uh, She, you know, has to bring Fiona and the daughters like their food. She has to work at the diner nonstop. She's got to do all these things. And Fiona is really just beating Sam down to like, you're, you already have a job. You don't need to go to college. Like this is as good as life is going to get. Like just ignore everything else. You don't need, you don't need to go anywhere, whatever. And Sam is obsessed with going to Princeton In the earlier scene, her dad is reading her a fairy tale and telling her, you know, this is what happens to princesses and all these things. And he's kind of like, you know, you don't have to do this. You know, you don't need to find a prince. You don't need to find that. What's what's more important is your education and, you know, going to school and all these things. And baby Hilary Duff asks, you know, where did princesses go to college? And he says, oh, well, they go to college with the princes at Princeton. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of just some like fast dad knowledge, some, like yeah, some kid she like dad joke bullshit, like yeah. But he was like he was thinking on his feet, and he was like, you know what, princes go to Princeton, so that's <laughs> obviously where the princesses go. So God, she's obsessed. Don't tell this to my father because he'll tell it to us for the next five years. Oh, I know forever. So, uh, <laughs> so her character after her dad's death becomes obsessed with getting into Princeton. She's a straight A student. She works seven days a week at the diner. She, she's crushing it. She's uh, working her ass off in school to make sure that she graduates in three years rather than four, which is fucking hard to do in high school. Absolutely. Um, so that she can go to Princeton and be away from her family or her step family and just get right. over it basically gtfo get the fuck out yeah so while she's working on her schoolwork she is interrupted by an aim conversation which if you don't know what aim is i'm sorry that you're a child um yeah for sure don't tell me that you don't know what aim is because i'm not that old damn it i i mean you might you be do, from a different you're just country. lying you might be from a different country so that's fair uh so aim is um America Online Instant Messenger, <clears throat> which is basically text messaging before text messaging really took off. It's like Facebook chat, but like 20 years ago. It was forever and ever and yeah. ever ago. Um, so you could, you know, find a screen name from someone, from some random person at your school or from a friend, and then just chat with them for hours and hours and hours on your computer. Yeah, it's like WhatsApp. Yes, basically. But she was in a Princeton chat room. And, you know, makes friends with another person who coincidentally goes to her school named Princeton Guy. And they really hit it off. They start talking about, you know, their future and their dreams and like what their plan is after they get into Princeton. And we find out that Princeton Guy, you know, he's living 
a facade basically he's the popular guy and being forced to be this person that he's really not you know he's gentle and thoughtful and he wants to be a writer and meanwhile he's has all this societal pressure to be like the prom king the number one guy in the school or whatever so he's pouring his heart out to her and she's pouring his heart out to him and they really make this connection um even though they don't know who each other are and this by the way was not a very fucking weird thing to happen in the in the era of aim like talking yeah. to random ass people yeah this was sounds actually part of the appeal of <laughs> aim and like people did it all the time uh yeah. going into random chat rooms uh you know meeting people that you would never meet in real life and then like talking to them and like getting to know them that was kind of like a big thing that yeah. it was yeah marketed it sounds psychotic now like right you couldn't imagine who are you talking to is that a pedophile which don't get me wrong people were still talking about that back then too but but it was a lot less because the internet was so new new. people were like oh fuck like i can connect with these people we can find people that have common interests you know people who were are introverts suddenly don't have to be fucking alone anymore because they don't have to you know get on phones or go out to parties in order to meet people and talk to people and you know like have good friendships with people yeah exactly so they (coughs) established this connection to her and princeton dude and the next scene she is going to school with her best friend played by uh dan bird who i absolutely love he is one of my favorite actors and he always plays like the clumsy best friend in all these movies for sure he does but he is so fucking fantastic at it like i don't even care he's fantastic yeah So she goes and picks up uh, Carter on their way to school and they get to school. They're trying to find a parking spot and they get cut off by the plastics, essentially, the three popular girls. And they're like- girls reference. Yeah, they're like, (laughs) what the fuck? Come on. So they're waiting for another parking spot to open up and another one does open up and then they get cut off by the jocks. So this is Chad Michael Murray and his two friends and they're like, come the fuck on. Like, I'm just trying to get to school. Like, come the fuck on. Can we please go? And the popular kids clearly do not give a fuck about them. They're just like laughing at the fact that they took the parking spot from the nerds, I guess. Right. So they get into school and, you know, there's quite a bit of buildup about the different characters and who they are in this world. So we find out that Chad Michael Murray, he's like the quarterback. He's the head quarterback for the football team. He's everybody's favorite person. He's, of course, dating the head cheerleader and she's like the most popular girl in school. Hillary Duff is just like a a nobody essentially at the school. Like nobody knows who she is. Nobody really cares about her except for her friend Carter. And they both kind of keep their nose to the grindstone. They're kind of looking to the future, not really paying attention to high school. Um, her stepsisters are like trying to be with the popular girls, but not quite getting it. They're just kind of being used by the popular girls, but they don't really care because they don't notice that they're being used. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> Carter is an actor, you know, he's a theater kid. So take with that what you will. Yes. Uh, movies from the early 2000s and late 90s depicted the theater kids in a certain way. And it's exactly um, that. High school musical just just think of high school musical and how all of the social hierarchies are split up and like that was essentially all of those fucking things 
shift mm-hmm. around essentially a little bit of the like core fashion and core like um like staples or interests but essentially oh no the, the fashion from high school musical was the fashion of a cinderella oh. story starring hillary duff like yes. it's the same <laughs> <laughs> the two the two early 2000s fucking fashion was a fucking train wreck and Okay, and I used to, sorry, I'm so sorry, but we need a sidebar because like Hilary Duff, if you don't know, it became a Disney darling because uh, of uh, Lizzie McGuire, obviously, uh, which was crazy and amazing. And it was the iconic early 2000s fashion uh, for like young preteens and teen girls. Mm -hmm. And it's fucking wild you thought the 90s was weird you only thought that then the early 2000s came and took their earrings off and were like hold my beer because i've got to put on my uh sequined alien bunny ears hair fucking headband or whatever and then uh you know strap feathers onto my uh fucking necklace and like with bedazzle yeah. my fucking like over the shoulder messenger bag or with with my tiny crop top and my low rise bell bottom jeans oh. with a studded belt embroidered embroidered with lots of cute uh bright ass colors and rhinestones uh, on the butt yeah yes it oh was a mess God. Let's never, ever, ever go back there. I had, I legitimately had hair things, like hair accessories were used on Lizzie McGuire. Yeah. And like, that was, that was a, that was a point of pride for me. Mm -hmm. Like that's, that's how bad it was. Yeah. The early 2000s were a wreck guys. (laughs) They were a wreck. So Sam and uh, Carter are talking in the hall, you know, she's telling him all about Princeton guy you know, how close their relationship is. She tells him, you know, he wants to meet at the dance at, you know, on this day, it's like this upcoming Halloween dance on Friday or whatever. And Carter's just like, you have to go. You have to meet him. You have been talking for months and months and months. Like you guys got to get with it. You need to meet him, figure out who it is. And she's just going on and on. Like, you know, we can't do that. I've got to work. Fiona would kill me, all these things, because she really has sunken into this like slave mentality. I have yeah. to, she feels like if she does anything wrong, Fiona won't help her pay for college and she needs money for college because she wants right. to go to Princeton. So she's going to follow every rule to the T so that, you know, Fiona ends up helping her in the long run. To be completely honest, people always talk about these characters as kind of like Mary Sue characters that are like, oh, that this type of girl doesn't exist in real life who like always is trying to do the exact perfect thing all the time just because because they're that virtuous. But that's honestly not quite true because I had I could think of several of my friends in high school that would have 100% fit this kind of bill of the like really overachieving oh uh, for sure girl or guy but like the overachieving student that their parents had really just raised them to be that 
specifically principled. Oh, for they, sure. You know, they AP never did kids? anything wrong. They <clears throat> never did. And, you know, they always got A pluses on everything. For sure. They always were in every fucking club and they were always in at least one, you know, physical activity. Like those people definitely existed. Oh, for um, sure. The, I- and- the idea of the Mary Sue, like that the Mary Sue doesn't exist is absurd to me because being <clears throat> growing up in that AP like mentality and around all those AP kids and being involved in it. Like, no, I was that kid. Like yeah. I eventually broke out of it, but I know plenty of kids who didn't. And all of those kids were my friends in high school. For yeah, sure. Same. And I know a bunch of kids who went on and continued to do that even in, in college. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Some of them so much so to the point where they got halfway through college and then burnt the fuck out of being yes those people and completely failed out and never went on to do anything with their lives because that's mm-hmm. what happens. Like Mary Sue is completely real. It's not unrealistic to try and be perfect all the time. Like that's right. A, that's a societal pressure that actually happens to people. Exactly. And the, the problem comes with, with people then criticizing that personality trait as some sort of Mary Sue mentality that is a flaw in your character like oh I'm doing everything right and even when I do everything right then I just get made fun of as the weird dumb girl that does everything right it's like you can't fucking win basically misogyny sucks sorry anyway yeah that was my tiny little spiel no I agree so Carter is trying to convince Sam that she (laughs) needs to go to this thing and she's just like no uh, I can't, I've got to go to work. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. And Carter finally drops it and they go on with their lives. Flash forward to Friday. It's the day of the dance. She's been talking with Princeton guy online throughout the whole week. And he's like, you know, you, you got to meet me. You got to meet me. I really want to know who you are. And she's like, I can't, I'm sorry. I can't maybe, maybe, I don't know. And she never really gives him a definite answer. So we know that he's going to be on the dance floor at 11 p.m. on Friday in the middle of the dance floor waiting for her. Uh, She goes to work after school and she meets the popular kids in her diner. They come and they're just hanging out. And the fucking bitchy cheerleaders are making fun of her, you know, because they're assholes. Like, haha, you work in a diner. It's like, bitch, I got a job. Like, who gives a fuck? Right. <laughs> but they're kind of making fun of her. You know, they take, she takes their order and then they get up and leave before she can bring their order back. And uh, Austin Ames played by Chad Michael Murray is like, oh, well that's fucked up. So he drops, like he pay, offers to pay for it. And she's like, don't worry about it. And just like, lets them go. Mm. So they go to get ready for the dance and she's busy working. And Regina King plays a character named Rhonda who is fucking amazing I love everything that Regina King is in but Rhonda is fantastic in this movie she's like she's the manager of the diner who has been working there since Sam's father worked there or was in charge there but has stayed on to kind of protect Sam and has just been dealing with Fiona because Sam is there and she has a strong relationship with Sam So she kind of sees Sam, you know, working and she knows that all these other kids are going to the dance. And she's like, well, why aren't you going to the dance? Like you need to go to the dance. She's like, no, I have to work. If Fiona found out, she would go crazy and I wouldn't be able to do all these things. And Rhonda's like, no, fuck Fiona. You're going to this goddamn dance. You're going to go meet Princeton guy or whatever. Like we're going to figure it out. So they go to a costume shop. There's a montage scene. They're trying to find 
something for her to wear. Rhonda stumbles upon a mask that's all white and she's like, oh shit, I got it. I got the perfect thing for you to wear. So they go to Rhonda's house and Rhonda pulls out a wedding dress that she was keeping for her next trip down the aisle. And she is like, you know, that's not going to happen anytime soon for me. Somebody's got to wear it. Like this dress (laughs) is begging for a night out. So go take it. So Hilary Duff, you know, gets transformed into this beautiful Cinderella looking girl. You know, Rhonda helps her with her hair and her makeup and gets her into this wedding dress and all these things. So she's in this beautiful white puffy ball gown and this white masquerade mask that's just over her eyes. So you can't tell who she is. And quote unquote. Yeah, quote unquote. (laughs) Um, And it's so ridiculous. And she makes her entrance into this dance and the spotlight finds her and everyone's like, who the fuck is this? Like, I've never seen this girl at our school. Why? Like, how is she so pretty? What is she doing here? And the whole school basically stops what they're doing and stares at her. And Hillary Duff and Carter, Dan Bird, they're just like, okay, well, this is weird. Mm-hmm. Well, oh, well, let's keep going. Let's go dance. So they get on the dance floor and they're just dancing around. She makes it to the center of the dance floor and she is confronted by Terry, who is this boy who has loved her forever, but he's like the creepy sci-fi nerd kid. Oh. And he's loved her forever. He's dressed like fucking neo from the matrix yes uh he's played by simon helberg from the big bang theory and he like he rolls up on her and starts like complimenting her and uh she asks you know are you princeton guy and he's like oh yes i'm from you know a planet far far away and all this dumb shit and she's like oh great i need a drink yeah And (laughs) and she sends or she sends him away to go get a drink and she's you know, obviously like kind of crestfallen, like, oh, God damn it. It's that kid who's been in love with me the whole time. And then Austin Ames, Chad Michael Murray kind of showed like ends up behind her and asks, is she Princeton girl? And then she turns around and she's like, oh shit, Austin Ames? Mm -hmm. Like, because his costume does not cover his face. So she doesn't know, like he's not doing anything to hide his identity. So she's like, oh shit, you're Austin Ames. Like, this was a mistake. Like, you're never gonna oh, ex- you're never gonna accept me for who I really am. Um, abort, abort mission, abort, abort mission. mission. So she's freaking out. <laughs> and Austin is like, no, like, let's talk, please. Like, I am who I've said I am in those in our right. conversations online. Like the person that you see at school is not the person that I am. Please give me a chance. Like, let me talk to you and you know, show right. you that this is who I really am. So they go off on a on a walk and somehow Chad Michael Murray does not, or Austin does not know that this is Sam, the diner girl, who he just saw in the diner two hours Literally ago. Literally two hours ago, yeah. Um, so they're on this walk. But you, but, but you forget her, her, her eyes, the area around her eyes are covered. There's virtually no way to tell who she is at that point. I mean, come on. Yeah. Like it's, yeah. there's no way. So, so they walk, they're walking, they're <laughs> making their way through this uh, high school, which is the most romantically set up high school 
in existence. I don't know if they were For like sure. planning a wedding or some shit that was going to happen at this high school afterwards. What they, fucking high school do y'all go to where they where they fucking decorate this shit like it's fucking prom in Hollywood or some shit like that? Well, like, I mean, that's what it is. That's what it is. They're in Hollywood, so. My fucking high school is, <laughs> you know, in a the gymnasium. Show. With some fucking streamers, maybe there's like a backdrop where you take the picture that is supposed to be the theme, but otherwise, like my fucking school is not doing any of that shit. <laughs> yeah. So they end up in this like beautifully romantic little courtyard that is covered in these little twinkle lights and there's like a band that's setting up. Like clearly there is meant to be a wedding there at some point, like whatever yeah. venue they chose to hold this dance at, there's going to be a venue on another part of the property that they end up walking to. So during their walk, Chad Michael Murray is asking, or Austin, I should say, Austin is asking Sam 20 questions. He's trying to figure out who the girl is behind the mask. So he's asking, you know, uh, all these different things like, did you really mean what you said? What, you know, do we have any classes together? He's trying to narrow it down. And Sam's answering them honestly, but knows that he'll never make it to her. Like he's never going to like, there's no way. They're, they're so far separated in high school. Right. Those social you know, Him being the number mix. one jock and her being just this like nerd. They're never going to figure it Become out. Become a Venn he's, diagram. For yeah, sure. he's yeah. never going to figure it out. So she's answering all these questions honestly, but he can't figure it out. And then they end up sharing a dance in the gazebo and almost kissing. And then her cell phone timer goes off and it's time for her to get the fuck out because she has to make it back to work before fiona shows up and she gets in trouble for not being at work so she runs away in true cinderella fashion and rather than leaving a shoe behind she drops her cell phone now this movie would not make sense in 2020 because if i drop my cell phone i'm immediately gonna notice because cell phones have become so much an extension of my person like or of our person in our culture like I would immediately notice that it's missing or I would go you know two minutes later I'd go to look for something to text somebody or look at something where the fuck my phone at yeah and I'd immediately retrace my steps looking for my phone but in 2004 that was not so much the case you had people had cell phones which was kind of rare uh, like kids who had cell phones, they were like the richer kids or had more money yeah. or whatever. And they weren't fancy cell phones. Like this was before smartphones were a thing. So basically yeah. the only thing you could do on a cell phone was text people and call people. So these we're talking flip phones. Play snake. Yeah, we're talking <laughs> basic flip phones with little to no technology involved in them. Yeah. So she drops her cell phone and just forgets it because she's like, I got to get back to fucking work. So she grabs Carter and they drive back to work and they make it just in time before Fiona gets back to work. She like throws on an apron and shit and puts her hair up real quick and and a baseball hat. She like puts some batter on her face so she looks tore up like she'd been at work all day. And (laughs) she's like, I'm right here. It's fine. So her stepmother never figures out that she was at this dance so then austin who doesn't know who this girl is is freaking the fuck out he's like who is the cinderella like i need to find her i need to figure out who this girl is his friends are trying to help him they set up like a dating game and they grab like 
40 girls who all agree that which it is was- pretty cute that his friends are like you know what we'll help you find this random girl that we don't even know if it's going to be in our social circle or not like yeah here you go, it'd be friend. cute it'd be cute if they weren't complete assholes prior right, exactly. to this but yes uh and they try to help him but he's like this is not how it's going to happen i know the girl she would never do like she wouldn't agree to this this is not a thing like she's not going to be here right and you know he's <laughs> messaging her you know, like we need to meet up. We, you know, when can I see you again? When can we talk again? And she's just like, I don't think you would accept me if you knew who I really was. I think it's better that we leave it like this. Like we had our dance. It was great. Um, now let's just pretend like this never happened. So she's really freaking the fuck out all the while they're both stressed out about their Princeton letters. They're waiting for, um, acceptance letters from Princeton and hers comes first. And it is received by Fiona, who opens it, which is a fucking crime. And she's like, oh, this won't do. I can't lose her. She can't go away to college. Like, I need her to work the diner. So she basically throws the acceptance letter away, writes a rejection letter on fake Princeton letterhead, and then gives it to Sam. The fucking dedication that you would have to have uh, uh, for being like, I just really want to fuck this child up for the rest of their fucking lives. Like, what? Yeah, so she's she makes a fake rejection letter to give to Sam at a later point, which we'll get to in a second. Um, At the same time, Austin gets his acceptance letter from Princeton and he has to hide it from his dad because his dad is a proud USC Trojans alum and only wants his kid to go play football at USC, which is pretty common for people from Southern California. Like that's the dream uh, is to play at USC because it's a big private school and their football program is insane. So if your kid is already in football, like that's where you want them to go. Right. And his dad is definitely pushing, you know, all of his hopes and dreams on Austin. You know, he wants him to be the head of the football team, wants him to be, you know, this super jock. And Austin's like, that's not me. Like, I'm a writer. Get the fuck off my back. But he has to hide it because, like, he's told Sam many times throughout their talks, like, I'm in a world where I don't belong, but I can't show my true face, basically. Right. For fear of prosecution is essentially what he's worried about. Sam gets home from school one day and she is chatting with Austin online and she's about to tell him, I'm Sam, the diner girl. And just before she's able to, her stepsister walks in and is like, I need that report that you were supposed to write me. Like, where, where is it? I need it done. You know, it's due on this day, but I want it the day before. And can you make it sound a little dumber so that I can stop explaining why how, I sound why, so smart in my essays? Why, yeah, why I sound so smart on paper, but I'm so not smart on not paper. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Sam's like, fine, whatever. And then Fiona, her stepmom, calls her from downstairs. So she has to go see whatever it is. So she closes her chat, closes her chat box and walks downstairs. Her stepsister in this moment goes over to ca- her computer and snoops around and prints out all of the conversations that she has had with Austin because she realizes that her sister or her stepsister, Sam, is Cinderella. Mm -hmm. So she prints out all her stuff and then she takes it, her and her other sister. First, they try to uh, 
rouse Austin into believing that it is them. It is one of them that's Cinderella. And he's like, get the fuck out of here. And it's neither one of you. And after that doesn't work, they go to the popular girl, Shelby, the cheerleader. And they're like, they make up this big elaborate lie. Like, oh, you know, Sam had this plan all along. She was going to entice uh, Austin away from you. And then after she, you know, had him on the hook, she was going to do this whole Cinderella thing and blah, 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 blah. Like this was all planned. So Shelby goes fucking nuts basically. And is like, okay, well, we're fucking this girl up. The next day is a pep rally and the whole school is out there. They're all, you know, they're hyped for this big game. It's going to be like the final game of the season. It's homecoming. You know, Austin's set to be the big man on campus, the big star. Uh, There's like college people coming. And his dad, who runs a business, is just keeps showing up at the high school like yeah he's at the pep rally he's also at the football game like i get being in the football game why are game, you here but like why <laughs> are you at the pep rally like what you this is not allowed so over he's there. involved helicopter parent <laughs> yeah so he's over involved everyone's like trying to get hyped for the thing and then the principal announces that the cheerleaders have a skit prepared you know to show to get ready for the big game to get everyone hyped for the big game so they put on this skit and this skit is acting out all of their emails so oh, no. basically they dress i the- forgot all of this sorry yeah. it really is like it i think the last time i watched this movie completely through was maybe in like 2005 <laughs> or something like that yeah. I've, other than that i've only like caught the initial like first half of it like all the ball and stuff like that yeah. every other time it's ever been on and yeah. i've fully forgotten the ending of it <laughs> so the cheerleaders get the stepsisters involved And one of the stepsisters plays Austin in the skit and the other stepsister plays Sam in the skit. And the cheerleaders basically do it as this horrible, like funny quote unquote skit. And Austin is like, oh, you know, I'm tired of being a football player and being this and I just want to be a writer and I just want to see you. And then they pull on Sam and they're like, I want to go to Princeton I want to do this but you'll never you know you'll never love me because I'm just a diner girl or whatever Mm -hmm. and keep in mind that this is all before Austin knows that Sam is the person that is not known his Cinderella he doesn't know so they rip that secret wide open and they ruin any type of relationship that Sam and Austin might have had because now Austin has heard that it's Diner Girl, but didn't hear it from her. So it's like a whole problem. And all the while, this entire skit is just mocking Sam relentlessly. Yeah. Um, for being in love with Austin or thinking that she had a chance with Austin or whatever. So she's in the back with her best friend Carter just sobbing. Mm-hmm. And Austin looks back and sees her and he's genuinely upset because it's all of his heart and soul being torn apart up on the stage but he can't show it because his dad's sitting next to him so she runs off and he's like oh fuck god damn it what am i gonna do right so then she gets home she's crying on her bed she's sad her stepmom comes in and is like i have news from you from princeton and hands her the fake rejection letter that she made and hillary or Sam breaks down and is like, of course I didn't get in, blah, blah, blah. And Fiona tries 
tries quote unquote to comfort her and is like it's okay you know you'll always have a job at the diner you'll you know it'll be okay we'll make it work blah 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 um and you know this only aggravates her more because this is the one thing she's been trying to work against well she just heard an entire skit that was bad you know fucking uh bombing the shit out of her for being a diner girl the rest of her life and essentially that is what her stepmom is trying to sell her is great yeah so she goes like crazy basically and she like kicks a bunch of stuff off her bed and just curls up and cries and she goes on with her yeah she (laughs) cries and cries and cries then she goes on with her life the next yeah i don't know seemingly weeks we it doesn't ever say like how much time went by but she goes back to life as normal she's you know working really hard in school still she's back to working at the diner nonstop. and then her stepmom comes in one day when she's like cleaning the floors or something and orders her to do something and finally sam has had enough she stands up to her mom and says no absolutely not and she's like you know what i quit i quit this diner i quit your life like i'm moving out and uh rhonda who works who is the manager of the diner is like you know what i was only staying around because of sam because i love that girl like i'm out too i quit yeah uh sam you can come live with me and then the entire staff of the diner walks out on fiona and all of the patrons of the diner walk out on fiona so stepmom has nothing diner is empty and hillary duff is like peace i'm gonna go live with Rhonda." deuces that same day, after she's like, no, I'm out, bye, she goes to see Austin. After she tells her mom, uh, or her stepmom, I'm out, she goes to tell Austin the whole thing. And she runs through the locker room right before the big game and lays it all on him. Like, yes, it's me. I never lied to you about who I was. I never right. said I wasn't Diner Girl. I never said this. I never said that. I was never pretending to be something I'm not. Right. You are the one who is constantly pretending. You need to decide who you are, who you're not. But I'm not going to wait for you because I was the one who got shat on during that pep rally and you didn't say a damn thing. Right. I was going to say, like, when the time passes, I'm like, and and so where is Chad Michael Murray? Where? (laughs) where, So, like, he has learned now who she is and, like, she just got fucking shit on. Actually, I think it might have been I think it might have been the same day. Like, because, because the pep rally would happen the day before the big, or the day of the big game, right? Fair. The day of, yeah. Or the same week at the very least. Yeah. So at, at somewhere in the same week, same day ish. So the pep rally happens. Then she is crying after the pep rally at home at school. Then she gets her rejection letter. Then she is crying and then she goes to work. Then she fucking quits because she's had enough. And then she goes and tell, gives Austin a piece of her mind. So she's like, I forgive him a little bit then because I was going to say like what the fuck is wrong with teenage boys when they just are like uh what do I do I guess I'm just not gonna do anything yeah bitch go talk to her that's what you fucking do dumbass yeah so she is just like fucking hurt and she's like I can't wait for you I don't care like you know that it's me now and I honestly don't give a fuck because you didn't stand up for me at the pep rally and you didn't seem to care and now you're like disgust. You were exactly who I was afraid you were going to be as soon as I right. found out it was Austin. This like, is exactly why I didn't want to tell you. Yeah. 
So she basically lays it in, lays into him and then walks out and is like, okay, I'm done. And then Carter, her best friend is like, you know, let's hang out. She asked him, okay, well, what do you want to do? And he's like, well, actually I was planning on going to the game. You know, it's essentially their senior year. He's never been to a football game. He knows nothing about right. football. And she's like, okay, well, I guess I'll stay because someone's got to explain it to you as it's happening. Because right. she's like a sports girl. So they go to the game. They're watching this whole game happen. Um, it gets to the end of the game. And it's like right before the last play. And the entire crowd is cheering. Austin, Austin, Austin. Because he's had a great game, apparently. Right. And this last play will basically make or break like what's going to happen with him in the future and what his legacy at the school will be and whether or not they win the game. And he looks up at her because he noticed that she stayed. He's continually looked up at her through the game, but at the end he's looking up at her and she gets up and leaves. She tells Carter, I don't think I can handle this because everyone's fucking cheering Austin's name. And he gets up. Yeah. She gets up to leave and he notices from the field that she's leaving. And he's like, well, I got to do something. And he goes over to the coaches and and his dad, who's also a coach question mark, but he's, I don't know. He's on the fucking sidelines. Who knows? Why is he on the sideline? Exactly. Who knows? Um, His dad's like, you're killing your dream. You're throwing away your dream. And he's like, no dad, I'm throwing away your dream. I got to go. And he tells the uh, backup quarterback quintessential teen moment. Yeah. He tells the backup quarterback, like it's your, it's your turn uh go get him and he gives him his helmet or whatever and the other guy goes back and then he runs to hillary duff's character in the bleachers who's like just making her way down the stairs and he's like i'm sorry i'm an asshole basically like i am who i said i was in the chat this like football player persona of mine is just keeping up appearances like that's not me i want you blah 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 and then they kiss and of course when they kiss it starts to rain to break a drought that they've been in because they're in fucking California. That's been like, that was a small minor plot line throughout the whole thing. And oh, yeah. it's crazy downpour. Uh, an welcome insane storm Coast, happens. Where everything is on fire and there's never any water. You're welcome. Yeah. And it starts this crazy downpour and yeah, they end up together and in love. Um Yay. The movie comes back and Sam is in her room at her stepmother's house and she's cleaning up her stuff, packing it up to go live at Rhonda's to prep, you know, because she's going to be there for the rest of the school year. And she finds this book, which is the uh, the fairy tale book that her dad was reading to her at the beginning when she was a kid. And she flips this, it had like landed and opened up on the ground and she grabs it and a paper like a package of papers falls out and she starts reading them and she's like oh shit and then it cuts to the next scene and she's at the edge of the driveway and there's a tow truck her and a tow truck and some cops and like Rhonda and um, a random person that we don't know and she is towing her stepmom's like fancy car like a Lexus or a BMW some expensive fucking car right Mm-hmm. And her stepmom comes running out and is like, I can pay for that parking ticket. Like my bad. And Sam, <laughs> Sam is like, uh, actually you can't, I'm selling this, uh, to pay for my tuition. Cause here it is. Guess what? I pulled out of that fucking book of fairy tales, my dad's right. will. And I am getting 
everything. The cars are mine. The house is mine. The diner is mine. Like, fuck you guys. Right. So she sells the expensive cars and uh, to help pay for tuition for college. And she finds out from her stepsisters that she actually did get into Princeton and they know where her actual like letter is. Um, so they go dumpster diving and find her actual acceptance letter to Princeton. So hooray. She restores yes. the diner back to its original glory, renames it Hal's Diner after her dad, which was what it was called when it was when it started. And basically, that's the end of the movie. Her and Chad Michael Murray end up going to Princeton together and they live happily ever after. And, Aww. you know, it's a Cinderella story. Yes. <laughs> they gotta, the, the Cinderella character has to end up with the prince because that's For how sure. Cinderella stories work. But you know what? I appreciate that that wasn't the zenith of the movie. Like, you know, normally that would have been the very last thing yeah. to happen. And now it's over because now everything is perfect because now she got everything plus the man, the prince. I appreciate that in this story, getting the prince was only one of many things that she wanted. And she wasn't even really wanting at that point the prince anymore anyway because she was concerned that he wasn't who you know she thought he was and things like that like getting him was just one point on her like arc of wanting to get things for herself in her life like wanting to be independent wanting to go to Princeton you know and further her education wanting to you know essentially break out of the controlling uh, family home and all of that type of stuff like that was the biggest part of what she needed in her life and they treated it as such by making that the end of it the movie you know yeah. and I really appreciate that because it it definitely subverts the whole idea of like and then they kissed and then they lived happily ever after because the prince is the only thing that matters. It doesn't matter what else happens. And it's yeah, like, no, no I, you know, I love like, that. I love that. More about this stuff film. matters than just fucking Chad and Michael Murray. Like, don't get me wrong. He's hot AF, but like, she was also trying to get into Princeton. She was also trying to stick it to her stepmom, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, no, I, I love that they chose to go with like, what's, what was important in life? Not just like, oh, the relationship is the important thing. And she didn't sacrifice her character at all for the love I, the idea of love or any of that bullshit right. that usually happens in these princess films this is actually one of the first films in the princess idea the idea of princesshood that really focuses on the idea that like having a man is not the end all be all or right. ending up with your prince is not the end all be all because it's after great this, it's some fun side piece but it's not fully necessary yeah. for your dream your dream can be bigger than just getting a man yeah, there's there's definitely um, there was definitely a shift in the mid two thousands of this like girls don't need to have a man to be happy, and that kind of translated into the all the future Disney film or yeah Disney films I guess or even cartoon films of um, like princes and princesses and this idea that they needed to end up together. It's like no, like Moana and Frozen and Rapunzel and Right. all these different ideas where it was like no happiness is the important thing like yeah yeah it was like happiness was the important factor here not 
the love. The love contributes to the happiness, but it's the overall happiness that is the important right. thing. It, it became it became finally more about a story of characters rather than the story is there's a man and a woman and this is an Avril Lavigne song. He was a boy, she was a girl. Can yes. I make it any more obvious? It's like exactly. Well, yeah. I mean, like I would I would love to have a thousand more things obvious than just he was a boy and she was a girl because like that's not the only thing required for there to be a happy love story. Like who is this girl? who is this boy? You know, what are their dreams? Who are they as people? Why do they know each other? Why do they make a good couple? Right. What is the oddly, you know, good fucking storytelling essentially. Yeah. Uh, And honestly, I think that my favorite line in this entire movie is the very last line. Sam is like narrating the last bit of this film, like, you know, explaining that she got the will, she was taking control of all these different things and her and Austin, you know, are going to Princeton together and all these things. And the last thing she says is that, so Austin and I got our happily ever after, at least for now, I'm just a freshman. So we'll see how it goes. And I fucking love, I fucking love that they added that in because to add to the fact she's, like she's, she's what, just 18? a kid she exactly. was 16 16 because she was only a junior or junior age because she skipped a year or Listen, was i fucking slow clap that shit out for yes. sure no that's that's amazing that they ended it like that because yeah. that's so fucking true you know like i get uh you know, one of the classes that I have to teach, of course, is transfer level English because everyone has to fucking go through it. So if you're an English teacher in college, you definitely teach at least one English one or one A or whatever it is, you know? And like, whenever I'm asking kids like that, you know, that class in particular is always the class that has the most chance of having people who are fresh from high school and sometimes kids who are even still in high school. And so when we do like our bios, like I always ask people, you know, on their first or second days when they're doing their bios, you know, their name. And I always ask them their major, but then I make a, I put like a slash and I go, or your sort of life goals at the moment, basically. Yeah. Uh, And because they're kids and there are some people who are even still in high school and they are not in high school. Sorry. There are some kids who are still even already in college and they'll you know be introducing themselves in my class and they'll be like I actually don't have a declared major right now I'm undecided and I'm like yeah that's totally fucking valid Mm -hmm. Uh, and he's like yeah I'm just trying to figure out I'm like because you're what you're 19 years old maybe 20 like yeah it's definitely fucking fine that you don't have your shit together like you're you're young you know let's please fucking eliminate this idea that the minute you turn 14 and you enter high school, you have to start figuring out how you're going to live the rest of your life. And that's just how it's always going to be like, no, you are still a child. You are still learning shit about life in general, about relationships in general, the world around you. You haven't even fully gone through the rest of your brain development yet. How in the world does it make any fucking sense to start forcing high school kids to start thinking about the choices that are going to affect them for the rest of their lives when they aren't even fully adults yet in brain chemistry not even just in like age or legality but like literally their brains are not fully fucking developed yet yeah (laughs) you know 
of course they don't fucking know what they want to do. And if they feel like they know what they want to do now, okay, well tune back in in another five years because it might've changed by then because when they're, you know, when they're done going through their adolescent, you know, uh, evolution in their brains, uh, the adolescence process can begin anywhere for boys and girls between 15 and 14 is probably the earliest, sometimes even 13 for girls. Men usually start it later. And then women will usually get out of it sooner so they can, they can be done with that change as early as 17 or 18. Yeah. But men will often start even later than that, they'll start often 16, 17, and they can take up to like 25, 26 before they're done with that. Uh, and that's actual like cognitive science yeah. that their brain is finishing their development and growing into the brain that it will then be for the rest of their lives afterward, officially adult their brain. It, it makes total fucking sense that, you know, at 20, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm definitely going to be uh, a fucking doctor. And then you go to college for five years and you're working shit out. And five years later, you're 25 or 26. And you're like, I'm absolutely not going to be a fucking doctor. I had no fucking idea what this was like. I don't want to do that at all. I actually want to be a a mathematician or an astrophysicist or whatever else it is that you suddenly want to be. Yeah. Like, that's absolutely valid, absolutely fucking normal. Relationship changes are all normal. The weird like high school sweetheart thing is super fucking, oh, I hate to use this word, trigger warning for it, but it's pedophilic in my opinion. The whole like glamorization of the like, I married my high school sweetheart. You know when like, okay, so the T for anyone listening right now, you know when you and I were going through um, old, old, from the 50s and 40s and stuff like that and even you know earlier than that yearbooks Mm -hmm. of uh some of our family members and there was the like head boy and girl or like best all around boy and girl or something like that and it was a fucking married couple yeah in high school yeah i get that that's how that was but can we kill that now now that we know that that's really fucking weird and like not actually appropriate (laughs) can we like kill this idea that like oh the person that you fall in love with in high school is going to be the person that you are with for the rest of your life no i I mean i'm sorry but it's just statistically very much not how it happens (laughs) all the time yeah sorry that got me on my soapbox you got all up in on a political tirade earlier and you're fine all up in the no I agree talk no I agree um but that's I mean you hit all hit the nail on the head of why I love that line so much because I love that the writers chose to put that kind of foresight into this teen girl like not a lot of teens not a lot of kids are thinking that way, you know, being a high schooler, being that age, everything is like life or death. And yes. that's just the way it is. Because like Sam said, our brains are not developed. And Your hormones are up, they're here, they're there, they're literally everywhere at once. It's just fucking crazy. Yeah. So there's like, there's this idea that for whatever reason, I don't know that it's still prominent because I don't deal with high schoolers. Um, but definitely when I was in high school, there's this idea that 
you know, whatever relationship you're in, like, that's the end all be all, you know, this is the person I'm going to spend the rest of my life with. This is whatever, this is whatever. And then when those breakups or whatever would happen, it was like devastating. My life is Mm -hmm. over. What am I going to do? You know, and then a month or two later, you're over it and with somebody else, but everything in high school is like at the, your peak emotions, like exactly this is the worst thing that's ever happened in my life this is the greatest thing that's ever happened in my life and it's like there's no way to kind of I don't know organize those thoughts in a clear way like yeah you know you're 16 17 18 like you have your whole life ahead of you and the fact that they added that into this movie it was like I'm just a freshman like we'll see how it goes I don't know if we'll end up together I was like hell yeah like yes that's exactly yes. right. That's how that's it should it, be. Exactly right. That's the idea. That's the feeling that you should have coming out of high school because you're probably not. It's it's very unlikely that you will end up being with the person that you met when you were, you know, 16 right. when you're 50. Like, the, <laughs> But I, I loved that line. Uh, okay, so some fun facts. Rupert Grint actually won the role of Austin Ames in this film. What? Before Chad Michael Murray, yes, but he had to drop out because of uh, commitments having to do with Harry Potter and the Sister of Azkaban. Harry Potter, obviously. Oh my god, my mind is fucking blown right now. So this could have been holy shit. Ron Weasley and Hilary Duff, like Ron Weasley and Lizzie McGuire for sure. But that it, would have been an entirely different movie, and I don't know if I if if it would have been a bad version of it. I think it would have been a very different but very fucking awesome version of it. I am picturing Ron Weasley from Prisoner of Azkaban right now, and I can't oh my God. I can't picture him as like the jock, like yeah, you know, quarterback, football player, like whatever. I can't picture that in my head because he's like this pale British kid (laughs) (laughs) and he's not like overly large like Chad Michael Murray for all intents and purposes Chad Michael Murray had been playing a buff high school kid for like eight years American boy for like eight years at that point yeah Yeah. for sure in all these different shows like One Tree Hill and then Gilmore Girls and all these different things like he that was him that was his persona he was he was the hot boy exact character uh so to imagine rupert grant like that at that time like it's really weird to think of i'm actually i would love to see that version of the film um with rupert grant as the main character and see how they changed kind of austin's character to kind of fit rupert grant into it because i don't think that he would have been able to be you know hot boy quarterback it would have changed Die. the vibe. It would have changed yeah. the vibe entirely of the movie. And yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm kind yeah. of blown. Yeah. Like, what That's the fucking fuck? Great. So uh, Cinderella is actually Hilary Duff's favorite fairy tale, which is oh. why she wanted to be in this film so bad. Oh, <laughs> funny connection. We were just talking about um, in Sam's room. You can actually mm. see a pile of Harry Potter books. Yes. So like that's great. Rupert Grant was there. Definitely. But like he wasn't. They were he was like, there in spirit. We're missing you. We're missing you, Rupert. Yeah, he was there in spirit. <laughs> okay. Uh many of the characters in this film have distinct color schemes. 
So yes. uh, Sam Montgomery and Austin Ames are primarily in blue. Fiona is primarily in pink. Uh, Brianna, one of the stepsisters, wears green. And Gabriella primarily wears red. And almost all of these tie into the colors that the all of the characters wore in Disney Cinderella from 1950. Mm-hmm. So yeah. they chose their character clothes loosely based, but like shot into the yeah. early 2000s from the Disney film. So that was really fucking cool. Okay, so this is my last fun fact, I guess. Uh, this is the first out of five Cinderella movies that were made or that were set in modern times. Mm-hmm. Um, the other films were another Cinderella story in 2008, a Cinderella story, Once Upon a Song in 2011, and a Cinderella story, If the Shoe Fits, and then finally, a Cinderella story, Christmas Wish from 2019. I don't know any so, of them. No, I know for sure. I think um, Selena Gomez was in the second one. Oh, Jesus. Or the third one. She was in one of them, I think. Because yes. uh, they like chose all Disney, the young Disney crowd, I think, for the girls. Um, right. They made it a vehicle for all of their Disney darlings. Not just girls, but probably also dudes at that point. Yeah, but I never watched any of those films because I don't Neither did a, I. I don't give a fuck about any of them, so... Nope. but there was five of them um and then that's my- very disney of them though disney like it makes no sense because no every time they do it nobody is fucking happy with it but if there's one person who is or if there's one corporation out there who is just impervious to learning a lesson it is disney of oh i did one thing and it was fabulous here's eighty thousand more of the exact same thing that nobody asked for and nobody fucking wants you're welcome yeah and then uh like all movies from the early 2000s if you grew up in the early 2000s they have fucking awesome soundtracks all teen movies from the early 2000s have awesome soundtracks so this movie opens up on, on one of my favorite songs of all time which is not necessarily 2000s teen related but just is one of my favorites and it's a right. this will be an everlasting love by natalie cole oh yeah uh, for sure which i've already talked about because that's in the parent trap yes <laughs> it's fucking fantastic i love i had that to song sing so that much. once i had to sing that when we did uh we had a quartet performance once when uh when i was doing performances uh with uh one of my friends in uh one of the towns over you know who it is you can yeah, yeah, yeah. in college yeah. uh I wasn't even, it wasn't even in college. It was in, when I was in high school, I was like 15 or 16. Yeah. Uh, we like had this whole like half of a, a show where we just did a shit ton of songs and it was uber. It was basically an excuse for her to like sing with a bunch of other good singers, all of the like songs that she was super into at that point. Uh, and she was super feeling Paula Cole and <laughs> like all of the like really depressing kind of shit. But that was actually one of the not depressing choices. So I had to learn the soprano song for all of Everlasting Love. Um, and it's a bitch to sing if you are a soprano because you better be belting that shit because otherwise you ain't going to get heard. Yeah. From yeah. Yeah. So this movie also features music from the Goo Goo Dolls, uh, MXPX. It's got all sorts of different stuff. It's got 
Soul Patrol yeah. on there. It's got um, Cirrus. Snow Patrol. Oh my god. No, not Snow Patrol. Soul Patrol. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Like Sorry, soul. I was about to freak out. I was like, wait a minute. No, it's got uh, it's got Maya. It's got Cirrus. It's got uh, Ed Mc- Edwin McCain who sings the uh, All Be, which is like everybody fucking knows that song. Oh my god. Wow. Yeah, man, the fucking early two thousands just slapped. It did. Music uh, is not the same. There's a ton. It has Jimmy Eat World. It's got several songs Ugh. by Hillary Duff. Tell uh, me the Jimmy Eat World song is the middle. No, it's uh, Hear You Me. Oh, that's fucking weird. No, it's like a, a cut. A early two thousand song that doesn't have the middle by Jimmy Eat World. That's weird. Yeah. Uh, but it's got a bunch of like Hillary Duff. It's got Haley Duff stuff. It's got a Our Lips Are Sealed, of course. Right. Um, it's got a. It's a really good soundtrack, and it'll instantly throw you back to that early two thousands vibe. The only other fun fact I had for this film is that the guy who plays Austin's dad in this film is also the dad from Smart House. Oh, that he's the quintessential like dad dude. Yeah, he plays a bunch of dad roles all the time yep. in Disney yep. during yep. that yep. age. Yep. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. exactly. Who so, you're about. so I can tie this back to two other movies that we've watched so far. So it's got this will be just yep. like the Parent Trap, and it's got the dad from fucking Smart House so. for sure. That's awesome. Can so, I just say though, speaking of music, speaking of a Cinderella story, which is Hillary Duff, peak Hillary Duff. I full on had Hillary Duff's album, her first album. Oh yeah. I, I had that shit memorized start to fucking finish when yep. I was a kid. And then I got her second album and you know, like it was okay. Like I, I was cool with some of the songs, but like that first album, holy shit. Uh, yeah. That it like ruled my life. No, her um, first album is fantastic. <laughs> Very interesting era in music, in life, in Disney. <laughs> no, it was fantastic. So uh, check out Cinderella Story. Um, it's good. You'll like it if you yes. like if you like uh, rom-coms, because it definitely is. Or if you like teen films, because it's just also a teen film. Seven worst synopses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, okay. Seven yeah. words to describe. I'm totally hoping you did not remember that, Sam. Thanks for my No, me. I remembered it. I, I was going to lead into it, but I don't have a seven word synopsis for 1984. Um, because it's a rough one. We'll, we'll do rough. that one next. It's rough. For Cinderella story. Okay. We'll start with Cinderella story. We'll work backwards. Okay. Fairy tale, but early 2000s, Disney and... Uh, <laughs> duff. duff okay <laughs> diner girl is modern cinderella beats stepmother Damn that's it. all okay. i got okay <laughs> these are horrible i'm that was not good mine was not good listen listen i'm so pissed off but i'm gonna do it anyway and we're just gonna accept it as a seven word synopsis because it's only one fucking word off that's fine we've done he was a boy she was a girl Nice. <laughs> Can I make it more obvious? Avril Lavigne. I'm actually surprised Avril Lavigne was not in that. In uh, part of the... Actually, at that point, she was kind of falling off. She was more like the 2012-2013, right? At least Let Go was that first album that she, she had. No, she was... Her albums were 2002, 2003, so she would have been huge yeah. at the time of this film. But they probably just couldn't afford the rights. Fair. Yeah. So 
because she, she was, because she was so popular. Whew. Yeah. So I would say chalk changes lifestyle to be with nerd. Yes. That and, is a great one. Okay. That and is, that, that seven word synopsis works for every teen movie from yep. <laughs> 1994 to 2000. You gotta write that one down. You gotta repeat it a whole lot. <laughs> Oh my god! To do a tally, actually, of how often that one repeats and totally 100% applies. Yeah. <laughs> All um, right. Seven words oh, fuck. for 1984. Oh my god. Oh fuck. My like my entire the hormone levels in my body had to change for me to I like, know. even remember that. Discussion. Drastic. What a drastic change. Oh my god. Okay. Okay, okay, I can do this. I've got one. You got one? Okay. Dystopian society, forbidden love, everybody gets brainwashed. Yeah, okay. That's super fucking accurate. That works great. <laughs> I was very worried we were not going to be able to produce even one of them for this. So I'm very no, happy. No, that movie is heavy. Right now. It's, or that book is so heavy. There's a lot. There's a lot okay. to it. Okay, I got this. Fuck the system. No more government control. <laughs> yep. yep. There you go. Yeah, for sure. Basically, the entirety of it is just like no power. Fuck power. Yeah. Yeah. Craziness. A lot. That movie is, the, or that book is the most. That was so it, much. <laughs> it's so depressing. Okay. And so, like, imagine me and my fucking 15-year-old ass reading that, and I legit, I'm not fucking joking. I was sitting there like, I'm so pissed off that I wasted my life on this book. <laughs> oh, because absolutely. it ended, and it's, a, it's fucking heartbreaking. And obviously, when you're an adult, you can understand why it's heartbreaking, and you can understand, like, the the reason that that decision was obviously made, you know, how impactful it is, why Orwell is doing that. But as a kid, I didn't fucking care about that. I was 15 years old. I was like, I just read this fucking awesome ass, you know, uh, love story. And then you fucking brainwashed him. And now they're not even fucking together anymore. And the fucking evil dude wins. Like what fucking bullshit is this? Yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. We are both very securely drunk and we have both covered our topics, which means it is obviously time to send you guys off. Thank you for watching. Yes. Thank you for sticking uh, with us. Watching. This was quite a long, wow. well, for listening. This was quite a long episode. Um, yeah. Sorry about it. Thanks for listening. There was a lot to say. Okay. No, 1984 is depressing as fuck and we need to get all the depression out in Yes. in the conversation about it i was wondering for a long time when i was going to cover it and so i finally was just like you know what fuck We're it gonna i'm gonna do gonna it cover fuck it now and get it over it get it over with so now we never have to cover it again we only have to allude to it in brief spasms of depression which we can then um happily drink away while we talk about something frivolous <laughs> yes okay uh so thank you so much for listening and check back again soon we will have another episode for you soon we yeah. are a part of the allentown presents network of podcasts Make yes sure that you go and check out allentown presents and their network of their other podcasts 20 minutes at the bar um just allentown presents uh i think spotlight series you've got spooky yeah, movie squad <laughs> yeah no we've got we've got lots lots of different episodes um if you have any questions or comments or concerns about anything having to do with real lit you can tweet us at allentown pod you can email oh. us 
at allentownpresents at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook at Allentown Presents. <laughs> All right. And we will catch you guys again another time. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Until then, keep it real lit.